we are at a time in our world where we need to birth a new story. And there is nobody that I know who has thought through what this new story might look like more than Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney. We're going to go deep on a multi-episode journey, exploring the big questions. Who are you? Where are you? What do you want? What can you do about it? And how we can all participate in a field of shared value so that we can realize that truly we're all on the same team, team earth, team people, team cosmos, and we must come together to address the existential threats that are all around us and also just live the most fulfilled, happy flourishing, thriving, beautiful life that we can possibly live. This episode is the second in our series. If you haven't seen the first, make sure you check it out so that you have the full context of everywhere that we're going and where we've been and look forward to the next one coming up soon. Before we get into our sponsors, I want to talk to you guys about Fit for Service. So we have already started reading and accepting applications for Fit for Service 2023. And I wanted to let y'all know we got confirmations from some of our guests who are going to be there, which if you're a fan of the podcast, you'll be familiar with these names. My brother, Aaron Rodgers, is going to come and participate and speak. Peter Crone, who's been a three-time podcast guest. If you haven't listened to any of those, definitely check them out. Dr. John Churchill, Dr. Kelly Brogan. There's... Matthias Stefano, who we've done several podcasts with, Robert Edward Grant, who's been a two-time podcast guest. I mean, some of the most incredible individuals are going to be a part of this. And this is just the start of a very long list of people that we're bringing into this year-long program. And maybe it's going to be the interactions with those people that'll change your life. Maybe it will be with one of our coaches, myself, or Eric Godsey, or Caitlin Howe, or Vailana, or Kyle Kingsbury. Or maybe it will just be with the people themselves. I mean, this is a network of some of the highest performing heart forward people that I've ever intermingled with. And some of my best friends have come out of this fit for service program. And every single member has some of their best friends coming out of the fit for service program. This is an alumni network that can help get you from where you are to that path, your dharmic path of where you want to go truly and be fit to actually walk that path, a path that you might not have even dared to dream, a path that might not even be available, but here it is, like right here in front of you as an opportunity. So if you're interested, definitely check it out. Go to fitforservice.com. Applications are only open up through December. And also, just so you know, this is an opportunity for a free call. Like you can join Fit for Service have three months of coaching, come to a summit. And if you don't get out of it, what we expect for you to get out of it or what actually will serve your life in the best way, we'll give you all of your money back. Like genuinely, there's no risk and only the upside of what this could bring into your life. So take the chance, take the leap, salto mortale. Like this is your life. This is your one chance to live the life that you really dream and potentially this is the next best step to help you get there. And there's not a risk for you to try. So once again, if you're interested, just go to fitforservice.com. Applications are open now. And now a word from our sponsors. And I'm going to talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the Black Label version of Alpha Brain. What does Black Label mean? Well, that's just like the premium. That's the good shit. That's the top shelf shit. Now I love Alpha Brain. I'm actually on Alpha Brain regular right now, and I feel sharp as fuck, and I love it. But that's really actually only because I ran out of Alpha Brain Black Label. 
The reason that I like Black Label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients. It has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain. It also has different forms of choline and it has mucunipurians, which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged, focused, and rewarded for the work that I'm doing. So Alpha Brain Black Label is just my absolute go-to. It's also really good as a mood enhancer. I just feel better when I'm taking it. And when my mood is better, I'm more productive and I'm able to be at my best. So if you guys haven't checked it out, please do. It is the shit. Also, the packaging is super sexy, so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything at Onit and also Alpha Brain Black Label. Once again, onit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney. Mark, we're back. We're back. We're back. And we're here to answer a very important question. And I must say that I have asked certain masters this question who am I? And the answer has been, aha, this is a question to ponder, not a question, <laughs> not a question to answer. But asking you that question, you say, fuck that. Let's answer this shit. Let's not do too much ponder. Let's, we got to ponder. Yep. And, and I want to make a distinction, actually, between there's a question and an answer and a question and a response, mm. right? So we don't answer it in the sense that it removes the mystery. Mm. And in that sense, the masters are right. I mean, we hold the mystery. We hold the uncertainty of identity, which is always there. And yet there's this postmodern fucking obsession, what I would call a non-dialectical obsession. Now, mm. non-dialectical obsession is a bad pathology. So everyone, if you feel like you're listening, you feel like you have a non-dialectical obsession, seek your therapist. Explain that. Okay, so non-dialectical obsession means you get one side and not the other side. So there's certainty. Mm. And uncertainty. Mm -hmm. That's a dialectic. You got to hold both poles and live in both poles. So, for example, pre-modernity till the Renaissance had a non-dialectical obsession with certainty. We got it. We got God said. God said. We got it's answers. It's in the book. And the good Lord said. And we have scripture on this. Yep. And scripture's got value. And that's a different conversation, but true but partial. So, if pre-modernity had a non-dialectical obsession with certainty, post, right, to add certainty, didn't own any of the uncertainties. So for example, if you would ask someone of pre-modernity, why is someone suffering? They'd say they're suffering because they violated this sin and it's this punishment for that violation. And that removed empathy and that removed compassion, that removed love. Mm. Post-modernity has a non-dialectical obsession with uncertainty, right? <laughs> and now that we only yeah. have uncertainty, we don't have any certainties. Right? That's bullshit. So in some sense, pre-modernity said... Except for occasionally science as told by the so, default majority so narrative, this is that's, that which is, is this that, crazy, crazy kind of that, paradox. That is a, that, and that is a fucking brilliant insight. It's absolutely correct, right? Which is the one place, right? Post-modernity said, we're going to allow for it. It said, we're going to allow for certainty is science, but... Only a particular kind of science, which does measurable, quantifiable equations. And that worked for a while. But then postmodernity said, well, maybe that's not right either. Right. And in a new set of writings over the last 25 years, and books like Women's Way of Knowing, you know, Ways of Knowing kind of explores this. Well, it began to actually realize, by the way, correctly, it was one of postmodernity's better notions, oh, that science itself is actually a grand narrative. And 
and then it began to dismiss science as well, right? In other words, there's a major move in post-modernity, which is not completely wrong, actually, this piece, which is to question science's authority, which it should, but it's part of a general questioning of, oh, I don't have certainty about anything. Yeah. But that's only true. Here's the big thing. That's only true in terms of the meta theory. But actually, there's great postmodern theorists who walk home and are madly in love with their kids, and they're actually certain about that, mm. and, and they actually dissociate between that certainty, right, and their kind of metaphysical speculation. The truth of reality is, is that both certainty and uncertainty, mystery and gnosis, knowing and unknowing are actually opposites joined at the hip, which mm -hmm. are themselves first principles and first values of reality. And as wow. if, if we said in our introduction, That's wow. everything is evolutionary. Everything is evolutionary. This is the nature of the cosmos. The cosmos evolves. Yes. So assholes with the trust the science bumper sticker should say, trust the science-ing. Right. Tr right. Trust, trust the science-ing. It's not done. It's That's never right. fucking done. And just like mathematical values in a value equation, right? You have values in an equation. Those values, as we do more science, as math, right, enriches, there might be a new, there might be a new way to approach that equation, right? right? So the equations, and we talked about in our first dialogue, I think that was a wild dialogue. It was a wild ride, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, and we talked about the, the evolution of value, meaning the dialectic between eternal value, there's genuine, real, eternal values. Love. You love your kid. You're participating in the the arrows of cosmos. Yeah. That's an eternal value. And the way you love, and where you place the boundary of your love, from egocentric love, just my my peeps, right, to you know, ethnocentric, my whole tribe, to world-centric, every human being, right, to cosmocentric, every animal, all of being. The evolution of love. Love evolves. So love is eternal and evolving, paradoxical dialectic. Dialectic's a great word. There's anytime someone tells you that they've left paradox behind, they've got, they got the whole thing, right? Their truth is not true, but partial. They got the whole thing, right? And everything else is out of the court. Something's wrong. And you, also you'll notice that person doesn't laugh a lot, actually. And in just personal experience, anecdotal, oh my God, right? that person doesn't laugh a lot because they're so serious because they have so much and that never, they're certain about. <laughs> never trust people whose laughter isn't close to the surface and whose tears is not close to the surface. Right. And remember that book, we, we actually talked about it um, with your awesome team on, I think the other night, Umberto Eco's book, The Name of the Rose. It's this fantastic book where people are dying in a monastery and we're not sure they're being poisoned, apparently. We don't know who's poisoning them. And what turns out is, is the assistant rector of the monastery is poisoning them by poisoning the tip of the page in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which is about laughter, about humor. So when people go to look up Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and they, they study about laughter and they go, and they turn the page, they turn the page. Mark gesturing to licking his licking his tongue. Mark gesturing for those just to, listening to, to audio. Licking his tongue and don't get excited, everybody. Or just, <laughs> just, just turning a page. No, here. licking his finger with his tongue. What <laughs> licking, am I talking about? You can't lick your tongue. That was a Zen koan. Ah, <laughs> that was a Zen koan right, right, right there. That, right, so when you you kind of you know as you turn the page, you you know you lick your your finger with your tongue, right? And you turn the page. That those people would get poisoned because the rector thought that actually laughter is of the devil. And you got to be actually be serious. And actually, there's a dialectic between intense seriousness and intense laughter and intense play. 
And what you were just pointing to beautifully is that laughter holds paradox, right? And it's when you can hold paradox, you laugh. Yeah, what, what, a, what, a fucked up, what a fucked up idea that laughter and orgasm are of the devil. Like, right. like if you really want to fuck a human being up, and we're going to talk and, about and what a, a good human way. being this is. This fuck not in a good way. Yeah, fuck, yeah. And we have exactly. to do a dialogue on the word fuck, right? Fuck means a lot of things. Makes if you a lot really want to like turn a human being upside down, again, not in a good way. There's not in a good way. There's definitely good ways that human beings nice can be upside down. Nice ways that can down. happen, right, right. <laughs> but take the two great joys, or two of the great joys, let's say, and make them evil, and then see how that completely undermines the whole structure of the psyche and the body where the whole body is screaming, yes, and your right. mind is going, no, so, evil, sin, Oh shame. my God, right? So, so, so three, three, three ten-second things, because each one of those is so huge. So one, what you just described is literally what Gregory Bateson calls a double bind. And a double bind means Gregory Bateson was treating this kid who was a beautiful kid, schizophrenic, complex mother relationship issues. He finally stabilizes the kid. Now he says, mom can come visit. Mom comes to visit, right? She sees her son. Says, Hello. And at the same time, she gives him this hating, this hating, baleful look kind of darts from her eye. And both of them hit the kid at the same time. And he goes into a massive schizophrenic fit. And Bateson realized that's a double bind when basically two things are happening at the same time, which contradict each other, which are invisible. You don't have a way to actually talk about it. My mother loves me. <gasps> my mother hates me, ah, right? And, yeah. and this, it broke them apart. And in my body, there's a double bind. When my body says yes, right, laughter, right, orgasm, and laughter and orgasm, or laughter and sexing in Hebrew, book of Genesis, sachak, three-letter root, tzaddik, chet, Poof, maybe we can even put it on the screen, right? Is the same word. Yeah. It's the same experience. It convulses your body. It moves through you. There's a sense of relief. It overcomes you. It allows you to hold the world in a different way. Orgasm holds paradox. Yeah. I've in my own, in my own dharma that I've come right. to, it's, you know, laughter is an orgasm with different spasms. Yeah. I mean, that's that's I've just understood that it's very much the same thing. And this all relates very much to what we're talking about because. This split between what the mind has been taught and conditioned right. and what the body knows is one of the things that has gotten us so far astray and made things so confusing. Massive, massive, massive double bind. And, you know, this, this analogy, right, between laughter and orgasm, you know, convulsing the body, right, being almost involuntary, right, actually opening the space, relaxing you and giving you new gnosis. It gives you new knowledge, right? It, Laughter is a sense, is a faculty of perception, and orgasm is a faculty of perception, right? You look at your partner and you say, oh my God, I love you. You're so beautiful. Mm. Then afterwards you think, was I just saying that? No, you weren't. You actually, I can see clearly now. Mm. You can see clearly now. By the way, at a wedding, it's a crazy thing, right? And then we'll get back to our, our, our topic, I hope, maybe, right? You're in charge here. <laughs> I'm just, I just work here, right? But, um, but at, at a wedding, there's this notion that you need a priest to create the wedding to officiate in Catholicism. In the lineage of Hebrew lineage, and in most lineages, that's actually not true. Right? You actually don't need the church to create the sanctum. The church doesn't own sancta. So, for example, in the, in the in Hebrew lineage, you actually, no need for a rabbi. Right? You can have a rabbi, you cannot have a rabbi. I mean, and I, I loved doing weddings, and you know, the part of mm -hmm. my life that I rabbied as a verb, I madly loved doing weddings, and, and by the way, funerals. 
because everyone's there. Everyone, mm. everyone kind of shows up. You don't have to get people's attention. We're, we're yeah. in, we're on the inside. But you, there was a, a beautiful custom in the lineage to have a joker, right, at the wedding. Mm. A badran, B-A-D-R-A, and a badran. Why? Because two people are about to live together. Are we, are we fucking real? Yeah. Is that going to work? <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, talk yeah. about contradiction. Yeah. And you got to resolve that. And you can only do it by holding paradox. And, and what the lineage is saying is, oh my God, let's laugh. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that laugh. tradition is somewhat in the best man speech, you know, typically right. tries to bring in some humor. Sometimes it goes horribly some wrong. Goes because goes very they're, wrong. They're not funny. Right. Um, but also in, you know, First Nations traditions, there's what's called the hayoka. So right. in the intensity of the Sundance where there's no food, no water, sweats every day, piercing to the tree, the hayoka will go around to the people who are so thirsty and so oh, hungry and, I love this. and eat watermelon right in front of their face and just look at them in the eye and just fuck with them and, and laugh and break all the rules and be antinomian, which means like- Antinomous. To yeah, to transgress the law. The law, right. And and that's their job is I've to been, kind of mix I've things up. Say, that's a really good word, brother. Well, you taught it that's to me. That's a sexy so, word. <laughs> so that's a sexy so word. So you're really patting yourself on that's the back a sexy through word. me. But well, I didn't, uh, I didn't I realize that. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't remember that I had done that. That is a, that's a, I was like, whoa. Well, yeah, Radical Kabbalah you, talks you say, about antinomian Could you say that again slowly? I'm getting excited. Antinomian. That's nice. Yeah. That's different nice. than anomian. I, it, I know, it is different than I know anomian. all these different right. things. I know that's good, right? Antinomian is good. But that's I love that. And I didn't think of that. You just taught me something. And thank you. And I appreciate it. I didn't think of that. It's a really, really beautiful insight that that notion of having the gesture at the wedding, right, which is a lineage tradition, actually finds its way into culture through the best man's speech. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that there's this, this knowing of that. And you can't create great marriage, right, you know, to evolve a relationship unless you really know how to laugh together. And that's not so easy. It seems like a simple thing. Laughter is an art. Yep. It's an art, right? And actually to know how to laugh is, and to be happy, most comedians are bitter. They're, they're actually mm. depressed, bitter, and it's painful. And then laughter covers, becomes a form of pseudo eros, covering over the emptiness. And, and the comedian actually often crosses the line into aggression, right? And so you kind of pick out someone in the first row mm. and you're a little bit funny, then you kind of cross the line into kind of radically aggressive. And they don't really know how to be in joy, right? Yep. So laughter's got to hold kind of this, this kind of, it nullifies reality. It holds paradox, but it also holds the core joy of reality. Laughter means we can hold the whole thing. Mm -hmm. We can hold it. And when, when you remove laughter from the story, right, you can't hold the yeah, paradox. Fuck that story. And so that's, we, we, let's, to bring it back to where we started. So we said, okay, we can respond. We cannot just ponder. Ponder is when we respond to the question of who are you, we say, if we're going to ponder, we're going to say, well, we can't, we can't approach that at all. Let's just ponder it, right? And that's, that's true, but partial. Let's hold the mystery of identity because the mystery of identity is real. And yet, motherfucker ponderer, right? You actually have to act in the world. We actually need to create a society. And we need to create a life. And we need to have a sense of a response to who am I, yeah. right? And so we, we're not going to answer the question, but we can respond to it very powerfully with actually a profound sense of holding the uncertainty, living in the mystery, and yet having profound, compelling certainty based on weaving together right, all of the conversations on self that have been had in history mm -hmm. in every period of history, pre-modern, 
modern, postmodern, like we always say, the validated insights of each science, mm -hmm. mysticism, interior science, traditions. Right? Let's weave it all together and say, what's the best response to the question of who are you that we have available in the world today? And Charles Taylor wasn't wrong when he wrote a book, Sources of Self, which is a fantastic book. And if anyone listening has nothing to do tonight, read that book. It's about a thousand pages. It's a little heavy reading and maybe get a little high before you start because it's hard to get through without, but, but it's a great book. But his point is, right? Which is, if you don't want to read the book, let me just give you his point, right? His point is, right? Let me give you a short, you know. There's probably mad people who are planning on it. So good right, thing. That's his point, you know, 20 seconds here. 20 second point is he makes the point. Let me quote him. And Charles, thank you, brother. He says, we live in inescapable frameworks. That's a great, that's a great fucking sentence. Yeah. That's absolutely true. You live it. And that, the core of that framework is the answer to the question of who am I? Now, you and I know there's actually three great questions, not one, but he focuses on that one. Who am I? And he tries to trace history by the depth or the paucity, right? The, the shallowness of its responses to who am I? And in the postmodern world, we live at the time in history with the most shallow response, the most insipid the most lame, the most pathetic, right, set of responses, right, to that great question, which we know in our body violate, right, our sense of the gravitas of who we are. Yeah. Wow. Amen. The, all right, so let's go through this. I think okay, here one, we of go. The, one of the key things to point to is typically when someone talks about who we are, they divide everything into three separate buckets, mind, body, soul. Right. And right. I think this is one of the this is one of the first problems when you try to actually create these as not a largely overlapping Venn diagram where there are differences, but everything is deeply interwoven and influencing the other. And I think this is fundamentally how we just need to redraw the map. All right, you could loosely say that those things are accurate, but they're true but partial, right? And this is, they call this Cartesian dualism, you know, I think, therefore I am. And then there's this meat sack and you, you hear this parroted all the time and it always bothers me. It's like, you know, uh, all this, this, you know, I'm me. And then I'm in this meat sack. I'm like, no fool. Your meat sack is you. It's all woven together. All of your cells from the cells in your gut, whether it's your microbiome or your microbiome, or even the even the parasites that are in your gut, the candida, that's all of the cells are all communicating right. and filtering and creating thoughts and patterns and your trauma patterns that you got from the field of conditioning and the, and the social mores and what you're sensing from those around you. Like all of that is influencing who you are at the same time. So you can't actually say, this is just my body and not my mind. And of course, great works like the body keeps the score, how the body stores trauma and stores emotion. And then you go into body work and you find a spot in the body and it releases a certain emotion. Well, that couldn't be true if they were all yeah, separate, yeah. you know? So I think the first thing to kind of look at, and I have my own, you know, my own models and maybe we'll get to it, maybe we won't. But the first thing to look at is this idea that there's a separate mind, separate body, separate soul. And then typically the value propositions a lot of people make is, you know, soul is best. It becomes a hierarchy. Soul is best. Mind is next best. Body uh, that, that fucking thing. So let, let's, let's, uh, I mean, you just said that was a big mouthful. It was a fantastic mouthful. I'm going to, I want to step back, you know, just one, one pace, you know, one step back, say two sentences and then step back in. So we're here to articulate 
you know, the new story of value rooted in first principles and first values in response to the meta crisis to allow us to live our lives, right? To actually avoid dystopia, but not just avoid dystopia, but actually to create, you know, heaven on earth, right? To create a world, you know, that is, is gorgeous and beautiful. And we're poised between utopia and dystopia. And we talked, you know, in our first dialogue about the only direct hit that we can do to blow up the Death Star, Star Wars imagery, right, is to, is to tell a new story, which is rooted on the best integration woven from the best validated insights of all the previous periods and all the wisdom streams, right, but in a new story of value rooted in first principles and first values. And we're starting with, and, and we're, 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 we're beginning with three questions. So I want to just, if we can, so our three questions are, we call these, right, you know, the three great questions of cosmoerotic humanism and cosmoerotic humanism, right? A world that's animated by Eros that we talked about in our first, our very, when we first met, our first dialogue, it's a great place to, we talked about this cosmoerotic universe and this great new story of value of cosmoerotic humanism rooted in first values and first principles asks three questions. And the questions are essentially who, where, and what? Mm -hmm. and, and the reason they're really simple is because we actually learned from complexity theory and the, the lineage understood this in its own way. The lineage says, right, establish all reality on three principles, meaning the lineage understood what complexity theory understood only in the last 20 years very beautifully, that you create a complex system that's coherent through iterating again and again, simple first rules or simple first principles. So what we're saying is actually, that works in exterior sciences. And we're actually understanding the same thing's true about interiors, realities, exteriors, and interiors all the way up and all the way down. So now in interiors, we're saying, right, Aubrey Mark, this conversation, cosmorotic humanism, working on with my, my, my dear brother, Zach Stein, right, and, and the gang at the center, we're saying three great questions. Who am I? The who question. Where am I? Or where the fuck am I? right? Mm -hmm. Depending on how you're feeling, mm -hmm. right? And where am I? What, what's the nature of reality, right? And then three, what? And what is, what's there to do? Which really means, what do I want? Or what do I need? Mm -hmm. And that's, so those are three huge questions. And we're starting with the first one, yep. which is, who am I? Okay. Now, in your very, you actually, you put so much important on the table. It's hard to know where to start. So let's start at, in the middle, which is always a good place. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you mentioned Bessel's book, um, Bessel Vanderkoek. And Bessel is, is a longtime colleague of one of our key thinkers at the think tank, Lori Galperin. So Bessel and I were speaking at a conference together, and we actually had some of this conversation actually standing outside the conference room, you know, one of those, you know, in the hall, a big piece of the conversation we're going to have today about this new vision of value. And when Bessel actually got it, you know, he said, basically he said to me, he said, what I deal mark is in stabilization. And I don't even, you know, and I said to Bessel, you can't just do stabilization. You actually need to go beyond stabilization. You actually need a vision of identity to call forward the person mm -hmm. and stabilization's insufficient. And actually his colleague, who I just mentioned, you know, and, and my beloved friend, Lori Galperin, one of the best clinical trauma therapists. So she's writing in the think tank. We're working on it together, a book called Unique Self- recovery, which is on the psychological application as a leading clinician of this vision of identity we're about to present. Mm 
Yeah. So, and oh my the, God. And for those of you who, if unique self is an unfamiliar term, this is a thread to where we're ultimately leading. Right. You know, we're leading, we're going to wend our way through all different theories and why they're true but partial. Right. And then find our way to unique self, which is, I think, the most important idea about who who we are. The best response we have the best today. response. And I want to just get the audacity of that on the table with, with radical, you know, humility, but humility and audacity. There's a word that, um, Aubrey, as we're studying and we're looking at lineages together, there's a word that you and I like. And the word is, it's actually an original lineage word in the Hebrew Aramaic lineage, which is called tikufot. And tikufot means audacity and humility in the same moment. And it's, it's audacity because we're actually making a big claim, but not, not an arrogant claim, right? A very, a claim filled with humility, but filled with a kind of urgent need to respond to this void of identity and so what we've done is for the last really 20, 25 years, we've spent actually researching intensely at all the theories of identity that we've been able to find in human history. So I want just to give people a sense of this is not a, a casual conversation we're having. It's filled with laughter and filled mm-hmm. with gravitas. And we, we've tried to understand the best true but partial validated insights, literally, of all the systems of identity that we found in the world integrate all that information in a kind of seamless way into the best response. And that's our, that's the overwhelming moral imperative of this day, because, because the meta crisis is based on a failed story. That was yesterday's dialogue or whenever yesterday was, right? It was the first dialogue because it's based on a failed story. We need to articulate a new story and a new story has to answer who, where, and what. So now we're no, in who? Hard to have a story without a protagonist. Hard to have a story without a protagonist, right? So, yeah. so, so, I mean, what a context, right? I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm so madly excited about the context. So, mm-hmm. so, so let, let's start with who. Let's, so who am I? So maybe, maybe the way to start is, and you, is to actually put a statement on the table, which engages or sets forth in literally 90 seconds or so right? And, you know, we, we mentioned this in the car on the way over and you did challenge my capacity to say something in 90 seconds. So I, I'm, I'm going to bear that in mind. I challenge uh, your capacity to say something in three minutes, 90 seconds. That's is, not even on the table. All right. One second. We got, we got, we got to stop. We got to stop. Pop, we got to stop. Clock here. here we go. Okay. So you tell me when to go. Ready? Here we, here we go. And you give us Christian, you give us a go. I'm walking. You're ready. Who are you? The answer to the question of who are you? Yeah. You are an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire of all that is that lives in you as you and through you that never was, is, or will be ever again other than through you. And as such, you have an irreducibly unique expression of love intelligence and love beauty. You have an irreducibly unique perspective. You're an irreducibly unique quality of intimacy. And that together comes together that comes together to foster your unique gift. And your unique gift is your unique gift that you give to your unique circle of intimacy and influence, the gift that can be given by you and you alone. Not only do you have a unique gift, you have a unique quality of being, the unique quality of who you are, how you live in the world, the poem only you can write, the song only you can sing. That beingness is your gift and that which emerges from your unique creativity is your gift. And to give that gift is your unique responsibility. It's the reason you were born. When you give that gift, 
and you play that instrument, you participate in the great unique self-symphony of being and becoming. Done. Fucking A, time to spare. 70, 70 seconds, seconds. time to spare. We, sh- we should have made a bet. We should have made a bet we on that. We should have made a bet. We should have made a bet. I was, missed a bet. That was impressive. I and missed a bet. I will say you were on performance-enhancing supplements. Right. You took you took the alpha brain, and I do know it was on it. It was, it was it was an on it product. I want to make an, that clear. For it was an on it alpha brain instant shot, and uh, you it, know <laughs> you just catch on fire. Hot when damn! You have, when you hot have damn! One of those hot things. damn! Hot well, damn! I mean, let's just say. I've seen some. Hot I've damn. seen some on it testimonials play out in real life. <laughs> right. But watching you after you take one of these shots is oh pretty fucking impressive. God. Oh that was God. stunningly okay. gorgeous. And, oh my God. and that is really that is telling everybody where we're going. Yeah, and what this unique self is, and the magical grandeur, and yeah. still the space for mystery in between of right. what is your love intelligence, what is your love beauty, what's how your do love you desire? find it, what is your desire, what's your how unique you, gift, how do you clarify your desire, and how do you understand your? So many questions still left, but that gives us beautiful framework. It does, and I think it's amazing to have that on the table, and then now start to say. All right, but what about what Freud said? What so, about, you know, what, so, what, about so, what everybody else so said? So we got we got to get to Freud, but you know, you know. <laughs> so I I'm gonna just say say something. You know, I'm, you know, I'm Jewish. So you know, we don't leave value on the table, and I get to make fun of Jews. No one else does. Okay, so <laughs> right, just be clear on this. Okay, so um, so uh, Christian, how many seconds was that? So I got twenty seconds left, brother. Yeah, okay. you do. It's 20 seconds left. Okay, 20. We counting? <laughs> 20 seconds left. Okay, 20 seconds left. Okay. <laughs> and, and in order to give your unique gift and live your unique self, which is to fulfill your unique obligation, your unique responsibility, you have to be willing to take your unique risk. Mm-hmm. Boom. Mm-hmm. 13. So just whenever I want, and I got seven seconds left. Okay, so yeah. just, good. We're good. We're good. Okay, so we got no, unique I mean, risk. We have to get to that. It's not enough to get a score on a bull, but right. seven seconds is seven could seconds do something is, there. Could do something there, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Seven. I'm gonna think I'll be thinking about that seven seconds. <laughs> seven seconds. Okay. So so Freud, start there. Take us inside. Well, I think actually before we get to Freud, I think we gotta I think we gotta just finish what we were saying about the body because the body is is actually the storage and the and the consecration of our uniqueness. We have, we know this, we have a unique fingerprint. We have a unique handprint. We have a unique retina and it's so unique that we can actually distinguish ourselves technologically from everybody else. And our whole body is informing everything else. So let's go to the unique quality of the body and then talk about how that starts to influence the mind, especially if we get into Freud's id, you know, these primal desires, where the fuck are those coming from? Right. No, so, so, so much we, is coming from I, the body. I love this. No, this, this is beautiful. So let's, we, we go slow now. Okay. And that on it brain supplement has a slow speed. So here it we does, go. It does. Has uh, all the gears. Slow speed. Okay. <laughs> so, so this unique self credo that we just shared, you know, you know, and I, I won't say it all again, but the idea that your unique self is that unique self is the answer to the question of who are you. So let's just say to start with, and we're going to go directly to the body now, mm-hmm. right? But let's just say to start with, by unique self, we don't mean your talent, although that might be an expression of it. We mean something very different. And in this statement, what we try to do is both respond to failed theories of self, right? And then embrace, right, the best insights of all 
the great traditions, and then weave them together in something which is emergent. So unique self is both, on the one hand, you'll find fragrances of it in different places all through history, and yet it now comes together because just like value evolves, just like love evolves, our knowing how to answer this question of who am I evolves, and that's what we mean when we talk about the evolution of consciousness, mm -hmm. okay? So we're, we're already kind of foreshadowing. We're saying the answer is unique self and actually what we're going to call evolutionary unique self, but, and we're going to go through five selves, but when, just, just to kind of point towards unique self and what we mean by it and, and wh why it's a first principle and a first value and not just a made-up idea. Before we even explain it, let's start with the body and maybe even go before the body, mm. okay? So uniqueness itself is the first principle and first value of cosmos. And, you know, in, in a discussion that we referenced, I think, briefly in our first dialogue, mm -hmm. right, we referenced a, a set of conversations I did with kind of the, the guru of NASA, Howard Bloom, who's a, a brilliant, you know, science writer and scientist. And we were tracing uniqueness back in cosmos. And where does uniqueness begin? And he traced it back, I want to, I wanna, you know, to the first waves, right? To the words, the troughs and peaks and the first waves. And a wave is actually a unique structure. What holds it together? And then uniqueness then exponentially, gradually emerges and within the world of matter. We're just in the world of matter. And by the time you get to a, a star, right, or a planet or a galaxy, a galaxy is literally unique like a fingerprint is. So when you're talking about a unique wave, just so I understand it, so let's say, you know, you can talk about waves in terms of Hertz, I guess, would be like the right mm -hmm. way to wait, right way to talk about it. It's audible. It's an audible kind of interpretation of it. But you say something is seven hertz or seven point eight three hertz. Well, still, that's a it's a rounded number, actually, like based upon what we're actually measuring, right? It's the, the it's peaks, not it's not exact. It's not the peaks exact. Peaks and troughs of a wave, and how it moves, right? The wave is a singularity, right? right? And and it it has a unique dimension at a particular moment in time, right? Which is never repeated, right? So there, there's a, the beginning of a quality of uniqueness, right? It's the first fragrance of uniqueness, right? And then, right, what happens is throughout, throughout the emergence of matter, uniqueness gets more and more pronounced. So mm -hmm. for example, protons per se, right, are identical, they're copycat, but when, when particular proton, neutrons, and electrons formulate in a particular configuration, right, into an atom, right, an atom can begin to have a unique atomic signature, mm -hmm. right? An element, like moving beyond a wave, an element, obviously as an element, whether it's helium or hydrogen, right, is a unique atomic signature. This is, we're talking real early. Mm -hmm. These are unique atomic signatures which are singular and unique, mm -hmm. right? They're not repeatable. Right, even when we, when we rain quarks and the gazillions of quarks in the first nanoseconds of the Big Bang, there's 16 approximately kinds of quarks. You would expect there to be exponential. There's a very definitive set of quarks, right? And then as we get a little farther, by the time we get to atoms, we have a unique atomic signature. Elements are are irreducibly unique, right? And then you know we come together, right? Right, planets, galaxies, but we're still in the world of matter. We have literally fingerprinted uniqueness. Right. And until we go through, we go through basically 12 billion years of more and more refined uniqueness until we get to the world of biology, 
We have asexual reproduction, which steps in as we move into the cellular world and then to multicellular world. We have uniqueness in cells, but then we move from asexual to sexual reproduction. 12 billion years in, sex is, emer is emergent, and sex and uniqueness are inextricably linked. Sex mm -hmm. generates, sex is the commitment of cosmos. This is Howard's phrase. Howard read the whole unique self book. We, I, I, was, I was privileged to, to write this major opus on unique self theory. So Howard read the whole thing cover to cover. And he said, this is his sentence, I want to quote him. He said, the moment which we move from asexual to sexual reproduction is the radical commitment of cosmos to unique self, mm. which is absolutely true, mm -hmm. right? And that sexual reproduction means I bring together these, these, this diversity in order to create a new uniqueness. And then as we move through the world of biology, we get ever evolving uniqueness. We go all through the, the biological world and we go from, you know, multicellular, you know, you know, eukaryotes, and then we go to kind of organisms, and then we go to kind of early plants, and then, you know, early fish, and then later plants, and later fish, and then, you know, amphibians. We go to early animals, and, you know, later animals, right? And then early mammals, later mammals, until we finally get the hominid walking on the savanna. But all through that, we get more and more uniqueness. Mm -hmm. right? So if you want to say, say it even more simply, just look at a, an atom, you know, an amoeba, you know, a plant, a fish, a dog, a human being, and then a kind of an awake human being. Yeah, one of the one of the ways. So as a, as an animist cosmonaut, as an animist cosmonaut coming at you, is that so? Yeah, so I love it. As someone who's explored these things, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, is that my my way into knowledge has been discovering propositions, exploring the depth of my own inner yeah. and outer cosmos, yeah. and then testing them out, seeing what feels true, what doesn't right. feel true. So in this, I've really been on this path of trying to uncover the uniqueness of the soul signature of different things. So right. plants, for example, it typically feels like an oversoul. It's not like you're talking to this one particular vine of ayahuasca. If ayahuasca is talking to you, ayahuasca is talking to you as ayahuasca. Or if it's another plant that's talking to you, if it's, you know, rose or cinnamon or, you know, different plants that I've had spiritual relationships with, it's cinnamon. You right. know, it's not like, oh, I'm cinnamon from this Jack. one, cinnamon Jack from Sumatra. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not that. And then, then you move up a little bit. Insects, kind of the same thing. There's like an oversoul. I've talked to Mosquito before, but it wasn't like Tom the Mosquito. It was Mosquito, right. capital M Mosquito. And uh, yes, there are. If you look down at the very this tiny little bit, there's tiny little bits of difference. But generally, it's all this one type of being, right? This is great. And then... Cats, for example. So cats was very interesting. We have two cats. I was on a heavy dose of mushrooms. I sure, I sure do know something about those two cats of yours. They, they slept with me last night. <laughs> they, they, love their, they, love, they love actually when you're in a very high spiritual state. That's when they kind of come. That's they're awesome. Actually, they're actually like a litmus test to oh where your level of consciousness is. They only like me when I'm in full God. Otherwise, they're like, Aubrey, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I, don't, I have no interest in you. Oh Whenever I'm in full God, they're like all over me. Oh, my God. But anyways, cats. Yes, cats. I, what I felt like with cats was there is an oversoul. You could call it like a, a, an oversoul of cat, but then each individual cat with their personality peeks out, like peeks out curious like a cat, very much in like cat nature where they want to explore and then retreat back to the cat mother, the cat mother soul. So it was this the kind of the beginning of real differentiation. And that's what gives cats personalities right and, then, and, and, and dogs. dogs and dogs dogs very much the same dogs are slightly different they kind of bend their way towards a pack but then they each have their own personality within the pack so the con configuration is different but by the time you get to humans you're talking radical 
radical uniqueness. That's right. And, and, and then, right, that's, that's such a... Because you don't talk to human. I've never, in all of my journeys, I've never talked to, and now I talk to the spirit of human. No, you talk to no, fucking we, act, we actually consider that people. person to be lobotomized, right? I mean, right. That's actually a, you know, a, a, a demarcating characteristic of mental illness, yeah. that you actually go back to being only the genus. So, so what you're saying here is crazy important because it's a beautiful way to illustrate it and to feel it. So in this evolutionary snippet we just provided, you know, Adam, you know, I mean, let's go, you know, to kind of Adam, amoeba, you know, plant, fish, cat, dog, mm-hmm. you know, um, monkey, we just added monkey, human being. And then through, this is really important, through the structure stages of human development, you know, hundred different researchers map approximately overlapping seven or eight structure stages of human development, you know, which are both interior and exterior development through those structure stages. Uniqueness continues to evolve. So what you have is you have an evolution of uniqueness mm-hmm. and it gets really gorgeous. So uniqueness is a first principle and first value of cosmos incepted right at the very beginning. It moves through matter to life to mind, right? Goes through all of the levels of matter, all the levels of life, all the levels of mind or the depth of self-reflective human mind. And each time you get more and more uniqueness on board. And by the time we get to dogs, by the way, you're absolutely right. There's clearly a the beginning of a unique self in dogs that doesn't exist in the same way in plants, at least not that's accessible to us. Mm-hmm. You're talking about very, very importantly, you're, you're, you're adding something really important to the table, which is you're adding another form of epistemology, another way of knowing, right. which is actually, I can actually have an interior right, experience right, in relationship to a plant. And a that's dialogue. A, right, a, a dialogue, and that's an important source of information. That's one of the things that's wrongly been taken off the table, not by science, but by scientism, the dogmas of science. And we need to kind of, in our methodologies of gathering information, bring other information gathering apparatus right back on the table. And one of them is, right, what is the relationship, right, between the interior of a human being and the interior of a plant? And there's actually an enormously growing scientific literature for the first time last decade, literally the last decade, that's beginning to explore that which was off the table entirely. And so your anecdotal personal experience, that's not just an anecdote, that's actually empirical information, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That you as a trustable source have access to. So I want to just say, we just put a, a kind of information on the table. That's really important. Yeah. Totally. Okay. So, so, and, and in the overarching kind of meta movement we're describing here is we're describing uniqueness as a first principle and first value, but as an evolving first principle and first value. And now at this moment in human history, right? The the triumph of this evolution of uniqueness over the last at least 13.78 billion years is what we're calling unique self. So that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. that's what unique self is. It's not, mm-hmm. and unique self has to take into account all the notions we have of human identity, right? In other words, all through the last leg of development, the development of the self-reflective mind, uniqueness has become more and more and more apparent. We've moved from unconscious uniqueness to conscious uniqueness. We'll talk about what that means. And we, we've emerged with this, this best understanding, best response to the question of who am I? I am a unique self. That's a, that's a gorgeous context and it changes everything. Mm-hmm. Meaning we're talking about a first value, first principle of cosmos coming online in a particular way, which means this is big, this is the will of cosmos. Mm. 
And that's Cosmos has a will. Cosmos is going somewhere. There's a telos in Cosmos. And a desire of Cosmos. And, 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 and the will of Cosmos, right? Very beautiful. So, so you say beautifully. So, you know, the word will, for example, and when I, when I refer, by the way, friends, to a, a, an original Hebrew phrase or Sanskrit phrase, right? I, I'm not saying it, right, in order to demonstrate knowledge of Hebrew or Sanskrit, but rather because sometimes in the original, you get a sense of the meaning of a word and, and language holds ontology. Language discloses the nature of reality. Language is, we don't even know where did language come from. Often I love listening to other languages. When I don't know the language, you're like, what, right? It's like, how do those sounds create? And languages are so primordial and languages disclose something about the nature of reality. So the word will, when I say the will of cosmos, and Aubrey, you say desire, right? So the word will is ratzon in the original Hebrew, R-A-T-Z-O-N, ratzon. And ratzon is, a, is an eros word. Right? So for example, in the Song of Solomon's, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, which is from the, the canon of Hebrew wisdom, which is a series of love notes between a lover and a beloved, which is considered the most important source of information about the nature of cosmos, and that's for a different conversation. It says, right, verse four, chapter one, Mashcheni acharecha v'narutza. Seduce me, draw me after you. Narutza, I'll run towards you. Roots, two-letter root, is the two-letter root of the word ratzon, will. So will means not intellect. Will is the, the movement towards that I make. Oh. Right? It's, a, it's an eros word. So there's an eros that animates cosmos, which is why the song of songs in the lineage is considered to be, it, as it were, the best interior science map of cosmos. Cosmos is animated by will, Alfred North Whitehead, Writes Principia Mathematica with George Bertrand Russell talks about right right the most brilliant mathematician probably of the 20th century talks about the appetite of cosmos. He's talking about the same thing. He just didn't want to say desire because he lived in Cambridge, England. It was a bad place to talk about desire right, in the you know early 20s. But so cosmos has desire, and cosmos desires uniqueness. So all of a sudden we, we just we get a sense of where we are, we're, and you can actually feel your body relax. Oh, we're at home in cosmos. Yeah, we're not making shit up. We're actually talking about something which is structural to cosmos itself, a first principle and first value of cosmos called uniqueness that's evolving and it's moving towards its penultimate expression at this moment in time because it's going to continue to evolve and it's called unique self. Well, fuck, I'll have that conversation, mm -hmm. right? Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow, yeah. right? You can you can feel the right in your yep. body, right? Okay, now we're and located. in your and in your body and in your and, body and and just that. Let's sentence go back alone, to that. Right, I can feel it in my body, and we've talked about anthroontology and how the intelligence of what you feel yes. in your body. Yes. and I think this is an important thing because yes, we understand unique fit fingerprints, unique retinas, unique actually unique. No, but this is unique, important. Unique scent. No, but even, no, but, even no, but stay, how we stay, smell. Stay, stay with that. But, but before you say yes, we understand because you said it before, and everything I said was in response to what you said before. Because what you said before is like crazy, right? Yeah. Which is you pointed to, right, the uniqueness of the human body. Yeah. Right. So there's a hundred thousand markers in DNA that are unique. For example, I'd like I'd like even talking about your pheromone signature. Your pheromone your signature, pheromone signature right? is trying to determine histocompatibility. It's called histocompatibility. Yes, yes, it's yes, actually trying to attract the right person based on your DNA signature, which of course we know through DNA forensics is also one of the ways thousand that you're markers. unique. But right. it, it's actually translated into smell. Right. You Fragrance smell, is a way. You smell unique. Which is why when you go, well, sometimes when people go out, 
And then they're in a moment when they're together intimately and something doesn't work, which you can't quite identify, right? It's not that right. It's not like, you know, we were growing up, you know, right guard was a big deal, which is, you know, probably bad for you for a, a million molecular reasons. It breaks down a thousand things in your body, but, but it's not that kind of smell. Aluminum. Right. That's aluminum. Funny. Right. Right. Thank you. Right. I was missing that piece of information. Thank you. Right. But, but, but actually pheromone, right. The pheromone signature, right. Which, which detects uniqueness is actually telling you something. And the entire body, right. Is this dazzling signature of uniqueness, but, but here's the key and sameness. Mm -hmm. So in other words, uniqueness is dialectical, the word that we started with. So we're both the same. If we were just unique, we'd live in an alienated world. There'd be no intimate communion, mm. right? Intimate communion is based on the, the dance between sameness and uniqueness, right? And so it's precisely, we are, we're all the same and we're unique, right? And so we, we all, what we all share in common is our uniqueness, right? And others, so, so on the one hand, you know, Charles Resnikoff, the, 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 po the poet who I, I love, you know, was writing in the 70s, 80s, I think even earlier, he says, not for a seat upon the dais, but for a seat at the common table. It's very beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so we all need to be at the common table together. We're all the same. Mm -hmm. That's why we can empathize with each other. And we're all unique. What we share in common is our uniqueness. So we're actually, we're a precise composition of what sameness we share in and uniqueness. Is our uniqueness. It's beautiful, yeah. Right? It's beautiful, right? And so we begin to this notion of unique self. It is very, 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 and we're going we're gonna to flesh it out, but it's very beautiful. But th the thing that you point to, brother, is that it begins, this is not a fantasy. <laughs> this is the evolution of a first value of cosmos, right? Because uniqueness is not just an is. So we mean by a value, it's an ought, right? And that's what we're saying. In other words, the eros of cosmos says, I desire uniqueness. The love intelligence of cosmos says we want uniqueness. It's not just an is, it's an ought of cosmos. It's where cosmos is going. It's what it's reaching for. So if the triumph of matter, cosmological evolution is in life, biological evolution, and the triumph of life, right? Biological evolution is in the depth of the unique self-reflective mind, cultural evolution, right? Which, which then triumphs in its highest form that we haven't even begun to talk about we're going to talk about, which is unique self. So it means reality desires your unique self. I mean, and all of a sudden that's not a slogan, not a clever thing to say. It's not a new age statement. It's not a fundamentalist statement. All of a sudden we're, we're constructing a new story of value. Like, oh my God. Right. It's like, wow. So, so now, now we have a context for our unique self conversation. This, this is crazy exciting. So let's carry on with the body beyond just the actual physical beyond the physical attributes of the uniqueness, but then also the, the way in which the models of how the body, so I think we've established that, and it's also going to be the same for the psyche. And in some ways that, you know, this, there's only one place where actually uniqueness collapses and that's what we'll call the, the true self. And that's actually merge complete merger with the field, which some have lauded as the highest state of being, but we have some questions about that. And I think right. we, I definitely want to get right. there. So right. let's totally lay that breadcrumb there. Let's, let's, let's lay it out. But then, you know, so, so the first, the first thing I think that's important to say, and you know, you can read Joe Dispenza's book, You Are the Placebo, understanding the way that the mind influences the body, the body influences the mind. This is just a key point that I want to, that I want to mention and how the spirit, whatever you want to call that also, which people have a very 
uncomfortable idea of what that is. And I think there's actually better ways to better ways to potentially describe that, but how they all are different. Yes, the body is different than the mind, of course. You know, thoughts don't actually have weight. You couldn't can't put them on a scale, you know, and, and weigh them out. Whereas all aspects of the body you can. They have even hair, if you put it on a fine enough scale, would have a weight. So there's differences, but there's also sameness. And I think this is one of the key Uniqueness points. and sameness. Uniqueness and sameness. First principles and first values of cosmos. And that's the, that's true with the mind and the body. And I think that's important to get. And also there's different buckets that you can put the mind in if you so like. And this that's what Freud was so, you know, kind of obsessed with in his model. With, you know, no, that's great. That That's, you know, and... And we should have a conversation once, you know, you mentioned does Joe Dispenza in passing, I think does some really important work and and does some really important overreaches, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a great conversation. Um, But, but so, and, and, and mad blessings to his great work. You know, one of the things we have to do with people is, is not find where they're wrong, find where they're right. Joe's right about a lot of things and and has got some massive overreaches, which are problematic in terms of creating a credible theory of self, Mm -hmm. right? But different conversation bracket, maybe we'll even do a dialogue with him one day, Mm -hmm. right? Super fun and important. But, but for now, let's see if we can put on the table, you know, kind of five or six selves, which will help us kind of navigate. We'll see what are the selves? What do we mean by self? And along the way, we can actually look at the different theories of self, which are true, but partial, what's strong, what's weak in them. And and let's blow that out. Let's go. So there are, there are basically, I want to look at kind of seven selves. And you could break it down into four selves, and I'm, I'm going to do seven. Mark said five. He found two more in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, it was the bathroom was was a big deal. Uh, the bathrooms are awesome, by the way. And we should talk at some point about these self-flushing toilets, but let's not do that right now. <laughs> okay, it's a different conversation. So, um, and the first self, which we're not going to spend much time on, we just want to notice that it's almost the, the pre-self, we would call the pre-personal self, right? And by pre-personal, and this is going to be a key part of our model because we're going to talk about the personal and the transpersonal. But by pre-personal self, you know, we mean, you know, let's say a baby before the baby individuates. Mm-hmm. You know, Mahler or Margaret Mahler talks about separation individuation that takes place at, you know, 18 months or whatever the particular time is. So there's this notion of a baby before individuation where the baby's pre-personal. The baby's identified with the mother and hasn't yet individuated. And then there's separation individuation, which is the beginning of a self. Mm-hmm. Now that's important because this pre-personal self doesn't just exist in babyhood. So there are both, there are shadow versions of the pre-personal self that exist within the, the child and the adult human being. So for example, a cult, mm-hmm. right? So a cult is a pre-personal regression, right? That is to say, I've lost my sense of being individuated and I'm part of the herd. Mm. It's one of the reasons why we have a, a complex relationship to the animal world. We love the rawness of animals. So in sex, if you say you're an animal, hopefully that's, that's a good animal. That's, there's mm-hmm. a good animal and there's a bad animal in sex, of course, as well, right? You're a beast could be good news or, or bad news. Mm. But the pejorative of animal is that animal seems to be part of a herd, at least from the human perspective, we actually just pointed out the animals actually have quite quite a bit more of a unique self than we think. But this notion of being part of the herd, being in a cult, right? Or, you know, being in some environment, you know, Burning Man's a, a beautiful experience that people talk about. And I, I've, I've actually been at Burning Man twice and I enjoyed 
being there and, and, and giving a bunch of talks there and some gorgeous human beings. And obviously it's a place of intense magnificence, but it's also a place that at times confuses the pre-personal and the transpersonal. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that you're in a drumming circle does not mean you're transpersonal. A drumming circle could be a place where your individuation gets lost, or it could be a place in which your individuation, you emerge and you, you emerge as part of what's going to be the seventh level we're going to talk about, which is the unique self-symphony, right? So there's, there's pre-personal, personal, and transpersonal, and we often confuse the pre-personal and the transpersonal. That's a level one, level three fallacy or a pre-trans fallacy. Mm-hmm. So the pre-personal is important to put on the table. The pre-personal is the baby before individuation, before there's a self. But the pre-personal appears in life, whether it's a cult, right? Whether it's a, any place where I've lost my sense of actually being a self. When I lose that sense, I'm regressing to the pre-personal. So I just wanted to get the pre-personal on the table because this issue of personhood is going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. That's pre-personal. That's one. Okay. Drum roll. From there, we get to the, the emergence of separate self. Okay. Now let's just say something important here in early structure stages of consciousness, it's not completely clear to us how much of a self emerges. So there's some type of hunter-gatherer societies, which there's a very clear self, and David Graeber describes some of them, you know, in his writing, The Anthropologist. And there's other hunter-gatherer societies where there seems to be more of a kind of a dawn man, a dawn woman, who's quite absorbed with nature and barely sees themselves as distinct right? Mm. So the, this emergence of separate self is quite a big deal, right? But in the, the history of humanity, there's quite a long period in which, although there's a technical separate self, right? The human being actually remains largely pre-personal, meaning the state, the church, the kingdom, right? Is the corporate entity. I'm absorbed in it and myself doesn't quite yet individuate. In other words, the word self in the dictionary, as Anthony Storr, a, a British writer, points out in one of his books, doesn't appear till the 16th century. So this emergence of this kind of word, the second level, pre-personal self, level two, separate self, which is what we're about to get to, separate self is a very big deal, right? And there's this talk about the myth of separation, which is important. Mm-hmm. Separate self, when it becomes the end of the story, is a myth. Yep. But separate self is real, actually. It's an ontology. Separation is real. It's actually a big accomplishment. Mm-hmm. It took us to the fucking 16th century to get to this realization that actually the human being has dignity as a separate self. That's a very big deal. And I'm a dignified separate self. I'm not just part of a larger whole, right? And again, before the 16th century, th- there were many places and many cultures in which the idea of separate self existed. But it moved between separate self who was in complete obedience to the king, right, to a God who imposed often arbitrary laws and, and sometimes deep and profound laws, right? But the notion that the human being per se, right, has value, not only lives as part of, you know, communitus, but actually as an individuated with discrete value, that emergence of separate self, right, appears in the Torah very early. Human beings created the individual human being in the image of the divine. And that idea, that Torah idea of the human being homo amago deo seeds culture, as John Adams says, and emerges and flourishes in the Renaissance. The human being is a separate self. So separate self is a great momentous evolutionary leap. That's a big deal. Separate self. 
So what's separate self? Let's start there. That's two. Mm. So separate self means I have dignity as a separate self, right? I embrace myself as Mark, as Aubrey, and I'm responsible for Mark. I'm responsible for Aubrey. And, you know, there's something for me to do with my, my Aubreyness and my Markness. And that's this beautiful notion of separate self. However, it has a very great shadow. And its shadow is that it's the end of the story. That all as I am is a separate self. In other words, in the, in the rebellion against the medieval and the, the proto-medieval period, right? Everything that led to the 16th century, the rebellion against the human being, being in part of a larger communion, part of the tribe, right? The, the utter rebellion against that is we lost contact with that. The human being no longer was experienced as being part of the earth, right? Or part mm-hmm. of the tribe, right? Or part of the nation. We rebelled against that because it created all great beauty and great cruelties. Voltaire, we invoked yesterday, remember the cruelties as the, the great cry of the, of the enlightenment, the Western enlightenment. So the Western enlightenment says, oh, no, no, you're a self. You're a separate self. That's, that's the Western enlightenment's about. Western enlightenment says we want to alleviate suffering. The way we're going to do that is we're going to actually realize your dignity as a separate self. We grew up on that. That's true. That's beautiful, but it's partial because I'm not just a separate self. Yeah, you're missing the dialectic of they're separate and connected. I'm missing the dialectic. I'm separate and I'm part of the whole. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden I'm only separate. Yeah, and that's right? true even for the body, which is separate. Right? And also we're shedding cells and accumulating new cells from the food that we eat. We're actually literally composed of all of the food energy, protein, lipids, of minerals the entire system. of the entire system, and then defecating it back out, contributing back to the system. We cannot extract ourselves entirely from the whole, and yet we're separate. If I, you know, clap you on the shoulder, it's your fucking shoulder. That's right. That's right. That's beautifully said, right? Meaning I, I'm not separate from the plankton in the ocean, right? In other words, if identity is that which gives me life, without the plankton in the ocean, without the atmosphere, without the biosphere, without certain kinds of soil, without certain kinds of insects, I don't exist. So the notion that I'm a discrete, separate self is actually an absurdity. In other words, actually, the true reality is, is actually nothing exists independently of everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. right? Nothing exists independently of everything. So, Which is the myth of separation. So when we say, well, when, so we that's invoke, what you mean. when we invoke myth of separation, we're saying that we're missing the dialectic of that's yes, right. Yes, and, 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 and so that's a correct, that's a beautiful. So, so to articulate the myth of separation in that way is beautiful. Yep. Right? To articulate the myth of separation as an absolute is a mistake. It's, it's, that's a beautiful, right, critique of this separate self. What we've added to the conversation, Aubrey, which is so important, is that the separate self is a great evolutionary accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? And whenever you, you have a new evolutionary accomplishment, the separate self, it has its great contribution. But when you reify it, right? When you apothesize it, when you make it the whole thing, right? instead of part of an emergent, right? Then it becomes, in some sense, idolatrous. It becomes distorted. So when, when separation becomes an idolatry, right? Mm-hmm. right? And when, when we, we transpose it into a myth, right? Into an absolute myth, then, you know, th- then we're in very big trouble because then, then in the end, it creates pathologies, like right? Sociopathy. And, and you cited yesterday, I think, um, um, your colleague, Charles, right? Who, who I think you invoked for the myth of separation. So it's a beautiful phrase. It's a beautiful critique. We just need to recognize that that emergence of separate self is a great and wondrous accomplishment. And yet it's true, but partial because as we just invoked, right? I'm part of, from an 
exterior perspective, a larger field. Mm-hmm. And, okay, big sentence, principle, first principle and first value of cosmos coming at you. Reality is interiors and exteriors all the way up the evolutionary chain and very far down the evolutionary chain. You know, if I was talking from a perspective of the interior scientist or from the perspective of Whitehead or, you know, a cosmologist or complexity theorist like Stuart Coffin, I would say, and I, I'm in cosmorotic humanism, our new story of value agrees with that. It's actually all the way down the evolutionary chain, but let's not debate that all the way up. Most of the way down or all the way up, you know, all the way down the evolutionary chain, reality is interiors and exteriors. So interior and exterior, just like sameness and uniqueness are principles of reality. So just like I'm not separate from the perspective of exteriors, right? Plankton in the ocean, right? And all the points you made, brother. So I'm also not separate from the field, not the physical fields, right? And field theory actually locates me, right? Field theory and science in the last 75 years locates me in the field. There's also a field of consciousness. The lineage calls it Chakel Tapuchin Kedishin, right? In Aramaic, the field of holy apples, which mm. means the field of Shekhinah. The field Shekhinah meaning the goddess, but by the goddess, we mean the field of Eros, right? The field of interior value, the field of interior meaning. I don't exist independently of the field of value. Another way to say the field would be the Tao. Yeah. The Tao is or, the field or even of value. Mi- or even mind. Like if you read the Hermetic principles, like in the Kabbalion, all is mind, the universe is mental. So we are a mind that's participating in greater capital M mind. Right. And it's just... No, capital M mind, back. capital M mind, right, is analogous to the Tao, right? Right. And when I say analogous, and I'm a, I have a, uh, just to, 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 to admit something publicly, which is a hard thing to admit, I have a, a scholarly side, right? And so I'm kind of a little intense and rigorous on definition. So I, I, and I promise everyone listening that I will not get into a long conversation on the difference between Shekhinah and mind and Tao, which is a good doctoral dissertation. But for the, for our purposes here, right. we can. And, and the reason I'm rigorous about this, friends who are listening, right, is just because without this rigor, you can't actually enact a new story of value. We got to be rigorous, even as we're being super broad. But for our purposes, it's certainly fair to talk about you know, a, a an interior field, which is the the ground of being shunyata, or the mind that Abra you invoke from Hermeticism, or the field of holy apples of Kabbalah, right? Or the Tao, and just like there's field theory in exteriors, there's field theory, if you will, in interiors. And just like Albert Einstein says correctly, and he got a lot of things right in physics, a lot of things wrong in other fields, but in physics dude was good. And he says, you know, the notion that I am separate is an optical delusion of consciousness. That's true, both in terms of interiors and exteriors, the notion of separation. And then that's correctly articulated as a myth of separation is simply not the case. It's simply Mm -hmm. a lie. Mm -hmm. It's a lie. It's not true. Now, whenever you lie, right, right. Whenever you lie about your identity and you split off part of yourself, you become non-intimate with yourself, mm. right? Because intimacy, which is, again, subject of a, it's going to be, a, you know, w- w- with universal willing, cosmos willing, an entire critical dialogue. What is intimacy? What's the intimate universe? What are the tenets of intimacy? But just for now, we can articulate the first snippet of the intimacy equation, one of our equations in interior sciences, which intimacy is shared identity, right? So I'm share, I have a shared identity with all the parts, for example, of myself, right? So 
if I basically identify my part as being a whole, I take a part and I make it the whole, which is the definition of pathology. Mm. Making a part a whole is the definition of pathology. So if I say my separate self, which is real, it's a great evolutionary accomplishment. But if I say that's the whole thing, I make the part a whole, I'm pathologizing and I'm actually non-intimate with myself because I've made one part of myself my whole self, whenever I pathologize in that way, I break down. So if we actually place at the center of fucking culture, a separate self, we are assuring the breakdown of culture, right? We literally, we have now- And the, and the breakdown of all of our environment and the breakdown and, and, and of all of our And because culture structures. is embedded in environment, yep. and actually today in the Anthropocene, right, the human being actually has the actual power to define the biosphere, Right? And we have this immense power to define the biosphere and we don't have a story of self equal to our power. We will absolutely break down right, the biosphere and that which, that, that, the home in which we live, but we'll do it structurally because it can't be any other way. And so in order to respond to the meta crisis that comes from that breakdown, we have to retell the story of self, but not as a conjecture, not as a contrivance, but a genuine story of value because, because that's what self is. Self is is a value, right? It's an emergence of cosmos. So separate self is true, but partial, critically important, but insufficient. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's our second self. Breath. Okay. Okay. So breath. Now, third self. And third self, again, is, 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 is for sure the subject of an entire dialogue, right? You know, five of them, but we're going to just, let's just do it super short. Um, you know, I, I would make you a bet on time, but you lost one this morning. I forgot to bet then, but <laughs> we'll let it go for now. Okay, this is short, but short. So false self. So false self is a distortion of separate self, right? And it's not, there are some traditions that identify false self with separate self, that separate self by itself is false self, because the notion that I'm only a separate self is false. So there's a strong set of traditions that actually conflate. They may use a different set of words. They might use these words, but in their, in their taxonomies of self, if you will, they conflate false self and, and separate self. And that's okay. Mm. But, but false self can mean that, but it also can mean something else. And I want to just give you a sense of what else false self can mean because, and so false self is, is a distorted separate self. And maybe we'll bring an image onto the table now just to make our play a little, a little easier. Let, let's create an image that can move through these selves. So let's talk about a puzzle piece. Okay, let's bring a puzzle piece. Let's, let's, let's call the, the puzzle piece theories of self. So a separate self is a puzzle piece that is told that there's no fucking puzzle. <laughs> now, so now, if you've ever seen a puzzle piece, it's, puzzle pieces are very elegant and beautiful. They're quite idiosyncratic, mm -hmm. right? So that's right. But, but the puzzle piece is told, you know, it's just you. Now, I want you to live your life well, you know, and I want you to got to compete with the other puzzle pieces, right? Because that's, that's 16th century and on. We've got this commodified world. You got to self-commodify and compete with the other puzzle pieces, right? So it's going to be a win-lose metrics because we don't have a larger story of universe, right? That actually, we actually really believe in, mm. right? You know, from David Hume and on, right? And so, you know, in modernity, so, you know, we have contrived stories that, that we don't fully believe in. But, but, but what we're going to do is at the very center of culture, we're going to displace, right? Those old stories of self, the real story that's going to govern you is a success story, which we talked about in depth in dialogue one. And the success story is 
is rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics. So you tell the puzzle piece, hey, you're a puzzle piece. Now your job is to compete with the other puzzle pieces. Hard to create a, hard to create a full puzzle from that, number one, <laughs> right? Two is, it's kind of hard to walk as a puzzle piece, just, just between you and me. You ever tried to, like, it's like weird puzzle. You can't really walk. Right? I just like, get the image of puzzle pieces comparing their nub you know, they're little, they're little phallus boy. My fucking nub. My nub is hilarious. one millimeter longer than exactly, your nub. Right? I got three nubs. You I got, got two nubs. Right. You got two nubs and a yoni. Fuck you. Fuck you. Right. Right. And right, that, that's that and exactly right. And, and I can't quite walk. So I'm hobbling along and I have this incohate intuition that I want to be part of this larger puzzle, but I'm told that that's crazy. There is no larger puzzle. So that is, so being a separate self as a, an ideology, the center of culture, which is how we're literally raising virtually all human beings today, right? Is by itself pathologizing, right? It is literally, quite literally in quotation marks, crazy making. And the reason we have a mental breakdown, right? Right. A proliferation of actually mental breakdown all over the world, right? Literally levels of schizophrenia, depression, right, right, and, and dis-ease that expresses itself in mental form is because we have a pathological notion of self, that separate self. Yeah, and also a, a deeply, it's coming to me, that a deeply embedded uh, misunderstanding of our embedded, encoded uniqueness. Because even in, the, even in a very lovely thing to tell your child, when you grow up, you can be anything you want the removal of all of these self-limiting beliefs. It's, it's kind of a beautiful sentiment. Just not to true. Say. It's just actually not true. Right, just, uh, it's really beautiful, fundamentally, just not true. Fundamentally not true. And therefore you're, not you're beautiful. Not, you're not cut out to be and therefore a not certain beautiful. type of thing. Like you're, you're not, you can't be LeBron James unless you're LeBron James-esque. You right. know, and so in some ways, like there are limitations to what's, however, it is a beautiful idea, like go for whatever you want, but make sure it's what you actually want. No, that's right. And, you know, and the, the ode to the Grecian urn, truth is beauty and beauty is truth, right? It's actually not even beautiful because when you tell, when you lie to someone, it's not beautiful, right? And you actually, <laughs> it's actually cruel, yeah. right? It's actually cruel to tell a child you can be anything you want. Yeah. I right? mean, and then the true thing would be is you can be an irreducibly unique, everything you That's said right. about you that. You are an irreducibly unique expression. With right? a unique We're gonna get gift, to unique with self. a unique gift and your unique challenges. And That's this right. thing is what Cosmos and Shahina wants more than anything else. We'll get to all this. They want to feel and fuck right. through life right. as you. And that is the most that's glorious thing that you could do and be. That, and that, that is right. Yes. And that's, that's now, and that's, that's unique self which we're going to get to. And that's gorgeous. And that's what you need to tell your kid. And, and, but to tell him you can be anything you want, right. Is, is capricious and cruel. Mm -hmm. Right. And by the way, a separate self has talents and they can take a Myers-Briggs test, but a Myers-Briggs test is the talent of your separate self. And then what you do with that talent usually is you self-commodify. Mm. You use your talent to win in the rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics. So, and if you happen to have the right one that society monetized or can measure appropriately and translate into monetization, you're in luck. And if you're not, you're fucked, mm. right? And a huge amount of the world is fucked because they actually have priceless talents. But if you have a priceless talent in the world today, meaning one that doesn't monetize well, right? You're in very big trouble. So, so you actually turn yourself into a product instead of turning yourself into a gift. I think this is one of the big issues, and we'll get to this later again. And some of what we're doing here is covering an issue, and some of what we're doing is laying tracks for other ones. Right. But in the breakdown of tribe, as we've transcended, well, we thought we've transcended 
this kind of tribal concept from pre-modernity, this merger with the tribe and this understanding that we're all contributing to something and everybody's an individual, we've lost this sense of, well, actually there's a, there's a role that you can play in the symphony that's very important, even if it's just the cowbell or whatever the whatever that simple part of it is. Not everyone needs to be first chair that's of the right. violin. That's Otherwise, right. everybody's competing for and, that. And we need to get to, that's right. And our number seven, we're now at number three. Number seven is going to be, number, number five is going to be unique self. Number six, evolutionary unique self. Number seven, unique self symphony, right? And you are, you know, beautifully giving us foreshadowings as we did at the beginning, like, where are we going? And we can get to this place and, and that you actually have a unique role to play in the symphony and that, you know, and that unique role is glorious by itself and, and, and yet different than everyone else's. And one thing that I think what, I, what really brought it to my attention, I just want to finish this thought, Please. is this idea that everybody has to make their own living and commodify themselves in a way that they earn their own they earn their own income. In the, in the absence of a tribe, that's true. And you do need that. You need that for your own sovereignty. You need that so other people don't manipulate you. It's an important yeah, defensive correct. move. It's an important part of the world. dignity of separate self. Right. However, there are some people, and you just feel it, that their presence, them being around and just hugging and laughing and being around, they actually improve the quality of everything around them and actually they're not very good at going out and making money. Right. So they end up getting a job as a bartender that they hate or a valet driver, which they hate. But actually, if you just had them at the center of the social dynamics of your community, then everything rises. And those people who are or do have skills that are able to make money and access resources, they all get better at it because you're there supporting them, loving them, you know, nurturing them in these beautiful ways this that is don't. Great commodify. This is a good, that beautiful, right? So, so the, 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 the shadow of separate self is the need to self commodify in a way that violates your uniqueness. Yeah. Right. I and mean, that's in a word, yeah. right? Right. So, so yes, the dignity of separate self is to be self-responsible, but to be self-responsible has got to mean a number of different things. And it, it can't mean the same thing for every person. And we need to construct a society in which being self-responsible means above all to thine own self be true right? Says Polonius Toliartes, right? To thine own self means to thine own unique self, right? Now, Shakespeare didn't have a notion of what thine own self was, but he had a, he was reaching for something. Mm -hmm. So, so what does thine own self mean? How does that work economically? Right? And it does, right? With, within a larger system. But let's just for a moment, right? Let's just stay on this kind of our third self is mm -hmm. false self. And false self, we said, could mean either, I think I'm just a separate self, one, or just to get, we get an image of false self. So one is you already put on the table. When my false self might be, I'm defined by a number of limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. I have a false vision of who I am. So limiting beliefs is actually a good way to talk about false self. Another way to talk about it with a dude named Oscar Acazo, Acazo, excuse me, sorry, Oscar, he passed away recently, who was actually maybe one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century. Um, one of the th his things that kind of surfaced, made it out, was the Enneagram. The Enneagram mm -hmm. is Oscars, and he gave it to a student of his, Claudio Naranjo, who I had some really wonderful interactions with, a great Spanish thinker. And the Enneagram is one of the ways of talking about self, your Enneagram type. But what your Enneagram tells you is actually who you're not. In other words, your Enneagram is the fixation of your attention, how your attention fixates in a particular way. So Oscar had this great intuition. He ran something called the Eureka School. And in this, that he had that, you know, in which he did kind of early, really important work, you know, in mind and never quite, there wasn't a writer, 
what was one of the most brilliant theorists, never really got credit for a lot of it and, and really just made seminal contributions. So I'll just give you one image, which I actually want to cite from him with great, great joy, which is, let's just say really, really simply that, you know, Gurdjieff, for example, one of the early, you know, philosophers of, you know, the last 150 years who, who was trying to, trying to come up with a new story of value. He didn't quite get there, but he was trying and he had an important role. He talks about the shock of separation, right? You're born, right? What am I doing here? Right? There's this shock of separation and I need to, I need to try and make peace with my world. So I tell myself a story about myself in order to deal with the shock of separation. And that story, right, particularly deals with, right, or approaches, right, the places where I feel like I'm, I'm not attuned to the world or I'm not attuned to my parents, kind of a proto-attachment theory, right? The world's not attuned to me. So I tell myself a sentence. It's the way my attention fixates in a particular sentence. And the sentence might be, you know, I'm not enough. Or the sentence might be, I'm not worthy. Or the sentence might be, I'm too much, right? Or the sentence might be, I'm alone. Or the sentence might be, you know, I'm not safe. You know, I was, I was flying back with a, a wonderful woman um, who actually was, was killed a number of years ago, um, died tragically young, but she was on her way to her wedding. And it was very, very clear to me that she was on her way to the wedding to, 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 to marriage to the wrong person. And, you know, I'm, I certainly wasn't going to share that information. Mm. And we didn't know each other well. She was a, she wasn't my student. She was a student of a friend of mine, but you know, I, I did a false self exercise with her and in the exercise, you know, I, I, I listed for her, you know, a list of, you know, 20 possibilities. I'm not enough. You know, I'm too much. I'm, you know, I'm not safe. You know, I'm alone. Right. You know, I'm not confident. Right. Et cetera. And the one she chose was I'm too much. And of course she was marrying someone who she felt could actually you know, contain her being, I'm too much and make her package her and make her safe for the world because I was too much. So when you're living in, you know, in other words, you know, I would say if, if I, someone asked me, you know, gun to my head, what's your, and that's what I call your, your false core sentence, right? And when I say I call it's really a Chazos, you know, I've developed it in certain ways. Gilligan has developed in other ways. There's a number of theorists who've done important work. This guy named Walensky did important work here, but and by the way, it's important just even quickly to cite people because we draw from people and sure. we have to honor them, right? So, so mine's probably I'm not safe. Probably I'm not safe. Some version mm -hmm. of I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. So when you have a false core sentence, you develop, you live and you generate reality from within that sentence, mm -hmm. right? And so either you, you go try and validate, right, your false core sentence, right? Or you, you go to try and protect against it, you know, you make one of two moves. Right. So you might, if your sentence is, I'm not safe, you might take risks or you might not take risks at all. Right. There's different ways or, to do or it. Or armor up. Or armor up. Right. There's lots yeah. of ways to do it. Right. Right. right? You know, I did it by taking risks. Right. So uh -huh. I, that was my, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I um, mean, you got to make sure that it's the right risk. But in any case, for our purposes, meaning I've, I generate reality from within, I'm not safe. And I develop a false self. Right. Which is the, the person I develop. I generate in order to cover up my false core if I'm not safe. And it's not that my false self is completely wrong. It's actually right in a lot of ways, but it's not actually rooted on the ground because I'm living within a false core sentence. Mm -hmm. That's just an example. It's not our topic today. It's an example of, you know, a false self, meaning there's particular ways that the false self gets, distorts 
There's ways the separate self distorts as false self, and it's really important to do work. And I want to honor the therapeutic world. The therapeutic world has great limitations, but it also has great gifts, right? And actually, the therapeutic world works at the level of separate self and particularly can work effectively in different modalities at dealing with different forms of false self. And, and so most therapy is at the realm of separate self, false self, does work there. It's not the pre-personal realm. Pre-personal realm is a certain kind of intense kind of, you know, um, deal. it requires, you know, forms of almost hospitalization. It's mental breakdown. But within the realm of the quote-unquote normal spectrum, although norm is kind of the name of someone who lives in Brooklyn, right? In other words, there, there's no real norm. That's a, it's a little bit of an illusion. But, but therapy works there, and it's important there. It's an important tool. It's a limited tool. So there's the pre-personal, right? Then we get to the personal. The personal has separate self and false self, right? And that, that's what we would normally call the realm of personality or the personal. That's how it's normally called. We'll see that's actually only level one personal. From there, drum roll, right? So we got pre-personal self. We got separate self. We talked about it's light and shadow. Mm -hmm. We've got now false self, which is a puzzle piece that's a little crumpled up, right? Yep. It's, a, it's a crumpled up puzzle piece. Now we go to true self, okay? Right, so true self, right? True self is a great momentous leap in consciousness. It's insanely important. It's thought to be my many traditions, the whole story. It's not, and we got to spend a little time on true self. So we talked about Western enlightenment that says, oh, what's the big deal? Separate self. Separate self heals suffering, right? Separate self responds to the pre-modern period, which says you're just part of a community. No, you're a separate self. That's the beginning of human dignity. That heals suffering. That's Western enlightenment. Along comes Eastern enlightenment, it says the exact opposite, which is why people are hopelessly confused, right? The Eastern Enlightenment says, no, no, no. That thing you're calling separate self, that Western Enlightenment where you grew up said heals suffering and it's the beginning of your dignity and the beginning of a thriving and flourishing life. No, that's the source of all suffering. Mm. That thing that Western Enlightenment, right, told you was the root of human dignity and ended all the previous suffering. That's the beginning of progress in the Western, right, Western Enlightenment. No, no, no. Eastern Enlightenment says, which lives all through the Western world today, Eastern Enlightenment says, no, no, that's completely wrong. That's actually the source of suffering, your separate self. Your separate self is a complete illusion. It's only a myth of separation, right? Your separate self is something you need to move beyond and actually get to your true self. And what's your true self? Your true self is the realization that I am one with the field mm -hmm. and I'm not separate from the field. It's sometimes even called no self, mm -hmm. called no self or, or true self. Right. And, and that is my enlightened self, the way it's described by Eastern enlightenment. And it's absolutely true, but partial, but let's uh -huh. get the truth first means I realize that my true self is inseparable from the field, the field of consciousness. I'm one with the field of consciousness and the total number of true selves in the world is one. Mm. So true self is the singular that has no plural Schrodinger's phrase, uh -huh. right. total number of true selves in the world. One, right? I'm not separate from the field, right? The Zen joke about, you know, the hot dog stand's not completely wrong. Make me one with everything, right? Okay, <laughs> we're on, right? That's that. So that's true self. And that is a beautiful, accurate, true, exists in every great tradition, some version of it. That's a momentous leap in consciousness. 
I'm actually part of the field. And when you experience this, again, as an experiential, Please. you know, psychonaut, this is that moment of what you would call apotheosis, where you merge with the field. It feels like God. And so you use that language, and there's not really another language you can do. It, it's either the it's either the kind of energetic, young transmission of the divine, which is everything, or it's the yin transmission of the divine, which is nothing, where you become the void, empty of all things, right. or full of Beautiful. all things. And that could happen, you know, 5-MeO-DMT Bufo ceremonies tend to bring you to the everything version, all right. of ecstasy, joy, pain, orgasm, bliss, love, laughter, all at the same time, screaming so loudly and purely that everything merges into the one sound, the one light, the one taste, the one, the one everything. And it's just oneness. And that's beautiful because it recalibrates everything and lets you know like, oh, wow, this is real. This is real. And then there's the void in certain ways with ketamine can actually bring you into this void state where you are just empty of all contents and all contents are possible, but none have manifested. And you can find both different versions of this kind of oneness right. and there's almost different faces of the of the oneness <laughs> but very, it's still the one that's very very and you just described very elegantly a a psychedelic approach to true self mm -hmm. right which is one that you're you're deeply versed in i'm not i um, mean i i appreciate the description and your description is well validated from my own practice through you know ecstatic modes of prayer ecstatic modes of chant meditative modes, right, yep. of realization, where in my own attainment, you actually have a, a direct experience of true self. And it has, as you say, but you describe both of those qualities actually appear both in my own experience and in the great traditions. Yep. So it's, it's an accurate reflection. It's beautiful, actually, for me to hear the psychedelic, right, you know, road into those two faces of true self, which is a kind of avoid emptiness state. It's empty of anything that's not absolutely full. Mm. Right, it's shunyata, mm -hmm. right, and and a kind of a one with the entire field, right, nothing left out. But you feel the utter realness of the field. Yep. So it's not like you've left the realm of the real. You've actually entered the realm of the real. Mm -hmm. You're in the absolutely real. So you are you are one with the field of reality, and you invoked a term, a good term, which I talk about um, in the unique self book a little bit, but more in. In, in, a, in a scholarly work that I did at Oxford called Radical Kabbalah, you talked about apotheosis. It's an important word. Apotheosis is, as you correctly said, to be one with God. And you quickly, right, did a little turn, and a correct turn. I just want to point it out because it was so quick, which is you were talking there, God, not as the creator of God exterior from reality. Yep. You were talking about God as God as the field, yep. right, which is more of a a kind of interior science, mystical view of God, God who's late atar panui mine in Aramaic. There's nothing devoid of sheep, mm. right? God is the field. So when you talk about God as the field, right, that kind of apotheosis, this kind of merger with the field, this union, right, with the field, I'm one with the field, right? That's a beautiful description of true self. So, so true self is, now this is really important. True self is an absolute reality. It's validated by the interior sciences. It's not a myth, mm -hmm. right? It's empirically validated by realizers of the most subtle and speculative mind hearts throughout history, right? When we collected the testimonies of practitioners throughout history, all separated from each other in space and time, when in the last 150 years we collected those testimonies, it actually turned out that they all had 
slightly different methodologies, practices, or yogas, right? First practices to get to this realization, but they all got to the same place, give or take different, different tastes of this, this one taste. Buddhists called this one taste. One taste has quite a few different culinary expressions, but it's basically one taste. And that's an absolutely valid real and the perennial philosophy, right? Which emerges in the Renaissance that Aldous Huxley wrote a book by that name about, right? Describes this true self as the be all end all of the whole story. Even Maslow at the end of his life, you know, in the last couple of years before he dies, writes in his diary when he was staying at Esalen, the retreat center, you know, which my friend Michael Murphy owns on the West Coast, right? He, he talked about kind of his first realization, oh, there's a true self there. He began to get a sense of that. Now, here's the problem. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, here's the problem. True self is true but partial, right? And this is a very big deal. When I, when I first started to say this out loud, you know, my colleagues in the world of kind of classical attainment thought, oh, right, clearly Gaffney has no attainment, right? Because he's, <laughs> he's challenged, right? Now, that's, that was the utter, the reigning dogma I had with my friend Ken Wilbur we had. And Ken's a gorgeous integrator and a dear friend. We had, you know, maybe two, three years of fierce contestation, right, on this issue. And b because the assumption was that any claim, right, that true self is not the end of the story, right, is based on some inferior realization, right? You actually, you're not realized, you're, you're confused. And I wrote a book called Soul Prince, where I kind of alluded to a, you know, in, in a number of places in that book to a, a state, you know, beyond true self, right, a higher level of self, Right, but I didn't explicate it. You know, I gave it to my, my friend, Ken, and Ken said, oh, it's a great book, but, you know, I'm not moved. I said, okay. So um, I get that, motherfucker. Right? Uh. <laughs> and, and Ken's fantastic, right? We just, we had just a gorgeous time here and, you know, in, in a, a million conversations. And we, we've managed over the last 15, 17 years to, for as much as we can, the last decade to try and talk every week and spend a few hours kind of in the Dharma together. And so I said, okay, let me, let me write a little bit more on you. Let me, let me write you a little bit of a note on this. So I wrote about 1,500 pages. You know, I went to Oxford um, and, you know, um, I was giving lectures then in Jerusalem. It's a little autobiography just for a quick second to locate it. And, and um, through those lectures, there was someone at the lectures who's, whose um, husband was a, a key professor um, named Moshe Edel. He's kind of the leading scholar of Kabbalah. He has a, a fantastic wife who would come to lecture, Shoshana. And you know, Moshe said to me, he said, this, this work's important, but you should get a doctorate. I had little, um, little value for the academy, which I kind of felt was a, a kind of center of mediocrity where, where there was not a lot mm -hmm. of original thought and Moshe said, get it anyways. Right. And I had, I had, I'd taken like five or six doctoral topics until that point and exhausted the topic, kind of reading everything about it and then being done with it. Why would I bother to write about it? I'm, I'm done. And Moshe kind of made the point that the point is to actually get the doctorate. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, good point. So, mm -hmm. so I, I went to Oxford and, and Moshe was my, my advisor and he's, he, you know, beautiful man. I sat in the Oxford library for, you know, about a year and a half, you know, as I was teaching, but when I was in Oxford, I would, you know, I found the one library that was open 24 hours a day and I would go like 20 hour stretches and wrote about 1500 pages, um, which I sent to Ken and, and the end became a doctorate. They only accepted 300 pages. And when I, when I went to my, my, my doctoral exam, they just wanted to like, give him the doctorate, get him out of here as fast as we can, because <laughs> they weren't reading the texts well. And they were, but, but, you know, blessings to Oxford. And my mother, by the way, is very happy. I went to Oxford. My son, <laughs> my son, he went to Oxford, right? So, so 
and this is a big deal. So Ken, Ken, to his great and beautiful, you know, integrity credit, he read it through in, um, in a few nights, marked it all up. Um, he started passing it around my friend, Zach Stein, right. And Zach has studied with me for 12, 13 years. And Zach's written brilliant work that actually is about unique self, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, Zach read the marked up copy of it and, and like Ken got it. He said, Oh, okay. I got it. And, and that was, that was, it was a description of this lineage of unique self, right? And it was based on a number of things. And I'm going to start in the beginning. One is there's this fundamental confusion between separateness and uniqueness. Okay. So this is a very, very big deal. And we begin to see the limit of true self because what true self does is, and I'm going to take this slow because this is, we're going to kind of slow down, right? Mm. You move too fast. We got this exactly right. When we get this, it's going to help a lot. So we pointed out earlier that there's Western enlightenment and Eastern enlightenment. They're both called themselves enlightenment and they both actually have precisely contradictory principles. Western enlightenment says we want to alleviate suffering. We're going to do it by realizing that who you are is separate self. That's where dignity lives. That's the ground of human flourishing. Eastern enlightenment says, no, no, separate self is the ground of suffering right? The ground of human flourishing is to move beyond separate self and to get to true self. So both of those, right? Bless you, Christian, right? Both of those, right, are true but partial, and they're based on a confusion between separateness and uniqueness. This is a very big deal. So Eastern Enlightenment says, wow, your separateness gets you in trouble. That's true. The experience of separateness gets you in trouble. I'm separate from the field, and it's not true. Mm-hmm. But my uniqueness is not my separateness because there's a seamless code of the universe, but it's seamless, but not featureless. It's filled with unique, distinct features. So you're part of the seamless code of the universe, but you're also its irreducibly unique and distinct feature. So actually I can move beyond my separate self. I can realize that I'm part of the true self, but that true self actually doesn't exist any place in the fucking manifest world. There is no true self any place in the manifest world. You're never going to meet a true self, not at a restaurant, not at a bar, not late at night, not early in the morning, not on a walk, ever. There's no true self in the manifest world because every true self sees through a unique set of eyes. Yeah, a unique perspective. And even as I talk about my own psychonautic journey, yes. right? The mere fact that I can recount what happened, I went to the, I went to the void I went to the everything. Is unique self is a unique peering out. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, you put in perspective. So an early equation that I formulated with Ken is true self plus perspective equals unique self. Mm-hmm. That's an early equation. We're going to update it today, but that's an early equation we formulated early on. It's in the first, you know, major unique self work, you know, the Your Unique Self book, which is the classical book that I think you talked about in the intro to the dialogue. And we talk about this equation, true self, plus unique perspective equals unique self. And you have an irreducibly unique perspective, meaning you're at a unique place in the time-space continuum that no one else that ever was, is, or will be is. So you have a unique perspective and that's never effaced by your true self. You've got a unique perspective. That's a very, very big deal. Now, not only do I have a unique perspective, but I also have a unique quality of intimacy. In other words, you know, if there's, 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 there's four of us, there's how many of us in this room? Four of us. Okay. So we've got Mark and Aubrey and Ryan and Christian. You know, if we did a little, you know, pointing out instruction, I would say, pull up the unique test. I say to Christian, 
pull up the unique taste of Mark. You got it, Christian? Got it? Okay. Pull up the unique taste of Ryan. Got it? Got it? Okay. Pull up the unique taste of Aubrey. Got it? Okay. Are you confused between the three? No. They're clear. Right? And, and it's, we, that, that unique taste is another way of saying there's a unique quality of intimacy, meaning if you and I sit facing each other and we're in silence, there's going to be a particular quality of that silence. If Aubrey and Lady Vi sit and, and they're in silence, there'll be a different quality of that silence. If Aubrey, right, and, you know, Ryan sit in silence, there's going to be a different quality of that silence. Ryan, Ryan abhors, abhors silence. He starts making jokes. You're right, right? So it's hard to sit in silence. <laughs> We're going to have to do a dialogue on silence. Silence is a big topic. Silence is a big topic. Not easy to be silent, right? But, but so in other words, there's a unique quality to that silence, right? Because that silence is not just true self. That silence, there's, right? In other words, everyone has a unique quality of intimacy. Mm -hmm. That's a, a person is, as it were, reality or God's unique intimacy. So let's up-level our equation. True self plus unique perspective plus unique quality of intimacy equals unique self. Okay, now we got an equation, but now let's go back. So Eastern Enlightenment confuses between separateness and says, oh, separateness, source of all suffering, right? Must be true self. Okay, that's great, but, but that's not the end of the story because your true self has a unique perspective and has a unique quality of intimacy. Now, here's the deal. Western Enlightenment made the same mistake, though. Equal opportunity employers here. Western Enlightenment also confused between separateness and uniqueness. And Western Enlightenment said, oh, the source of all dignity is separate self. Not true. The source of all dignity is unique self, right? In other words, your unique charisma, your unique quality of intimacy, your unique perspective, which gives you unique value, irreducible value, that's your unique self. Your unique self doesn't need to be your separate self. Your unique self is the unique expression of true self. I'm a unique expression of the field. And I just noticed what just happened here because it's actually shocking. And I, I called Ken in kind of ecstasy when this kind of clarified to me in the middle of the night. All of a sudden, we've taken the two major lines of development, right, in the history of human thought, right? One is the development, which leads all the way to the Western world, to the Renaissance, which says the apex is separate self. And the other is the development of all the mystical traditions, East and West, by the way. We call it Eastern Enlightenment, but it's really East and West. It's the, you have versions of this every place. But it says the apex of development is whoop, true self. So rational self is separate self, says Western Enlightenment, right? Mystical traditions say, no, no, it's true self. So we've got separate self against true self, double bind, right? Deep in your, deep in your heart, soul. Now, actually, both of those conflated separateness and uniqueness and made a fundamental mistake. So if you disambiguate separateness and uniqueness, you realize, oh, the source of dignity in the East doesn't need to be true self. It's actually unique self and unique self is true self plus, right? I'm one with the field and I'm a unique expression of the field. So unique self, right, is beautiful. And then in the West, I don't need to have the source of my dignity, right, be separate self. No, 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 I can actually transcend my separate self like, like the interior scientist said, but I send my separate self, but not just to my true self, but into my unique self. Now, let's just go back to our puzzle piece for a second, okay? So back to puzzle piece, drum roll for puzzle piece. Do we have a drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, hold on. Drum roll, thank you, puzzle piece. So puzzle piece is 
the experience that there's just one puzzle. It's just one. That's all there is. That's true self. Just one puzzle piece. Oh, oh, Aubrey, you see lines separating the pieces? That's an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Daishon, sit on the cushion, mm-hmm. meditate more, right? Oh, you, but you, you have the sense that you want to individuate? That, that's a lack of attainment, right? You, you want to actually say that you're actually not just part of the one? That's your ego, right? In other words, all the systems that basically say, you were talking about a friend of yours who says, right, it's only true self, right? And you were trying to explain unique self, but he was locked in this true self paradigm. And by the way, most of Western teaching either apothesizes, right? Makes the ultimate separate self and the classical teaching, both of the religions, the, the, the public teachings of the religions and of kind of being a secular U.S. citizen or European citizen or, or Chinese citizen, right? I'm just, I'm a separate self or apothesizes true self, right? Neither of which is right. Both of those actually cause a pathology because that's a denial of who I am. Actually, I'm unique self. Unique self is a puzzle piece which completes the puzzle. So let's go back to our puzzle piece image. All of a sudden, I'm a puzzle piece. All of a sudden, my idiosyncrasy is my uniqueness. It's my irreducible singularity, right? It's the intention of cosmos, right? Which we'll talk about a little later to, to manifest this uniqueness, which is me, right? And I can actually embrace my uniqueness, right? I celebrate my uniqueness because it's actually the intention of cosmos. My uniqueness is not just unconscious. I'm consciously unique. And actually at the higher levels of development and developmental theory, actually unique self comes online. When my friend Don Beck, who did Spiral Dynamics, a student of um, Claire Graves, read Unique Self, he called me and he says, this is the Bible for second tier, right? You know, in, in human development, when you jump to second tier, he says, Unique Self is, he says, in the, all the development line, develop, developmental lines, Don said that I've studied, right? It's, it's at second tier, when you jump to second tier to the higher levels of development, you begin to orient based on your unique self. Yeah, this is, you know, wow. I, just, I just recently did a podcast with John Churchill and he's deep in kind of Eastern mysticism, mm-hmm. which he describes transcending this idea of one taste. Right. But I think the fixation on it is that we're not actually at a level of development that we've actually experienced ourselves as part of the whole. We're still trying to under, overcome the, patholog- the pathologizing of the separate self as the only. And, and so and as a pointing out instruction, everybody's saying, become nobody become I am loving awareness and so much love to Ramdas. He's helped my life in so many ways through his teachings, right? But I am loving awareness. Loving awareness is one thing that is cosmos. That is the divine and all perspective, all awareness is just participating in the one capital P perspective or one capital W witness. And when I'm doing that, then I've reached the ultimate, the ultimate thing and becoming nobody is being only loving awareness. Whereas the next second turning the next turning even yes. in even in the mystical eastern thought is the next turning is great you got that congratulations now you are loving awareness as ramdas or loving awareness as aubrey and, and and eastern thought there are moments in eastern thought where you can find that but it's not where eastern or mystical thought goes for sure yep right which is why you know when i sat you know um Ramdas and I, we, we, we had a moment when we became, we became very close friends. We, we, we kind of fell in love with each other. We had a wonderful time. And I, 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 you know, I just completely loved the guy. You know, I went in 2005 to, um, and this is a unique self story. And we actually had, we had this conversation about unique self, which is kind of a wild. And I think, I think I even have a, a recording 
of the conversation I had with him about unique self, which I never, never actually thought of finding. But I, sh I should send it to him. Maybe we can even put it as an mm -hmm. appendage to this this dialogue. And so I went to um, Maui. He was living in Maui, and it was me and Ram Das, who's of course Richard Albert, Richard Alpert, his original name, and um, Krishna Das. I love KD. I don't remember what KD's original name was, but but it's not mm -hmm. Krishna Das. That's for sure. Um, and, and I'm, I'm also friends with this uh, great guy named Surya Das. These are the Das brothers who all have original Jewish names, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a separate issue. We'll go down that road now. So, um, so it was Katie, me and Ram Das. I, you know, we, Ram Das and I were teaching the seminar together. You know, he was, uh, you know, he was in, he was in post-stroke mode. So he wasn't doing that much teaching. And we had an incredible eight days, um, you know, including, you know, they had, they had Aubrey, this insanely healthy food. It was just terrible. I was like, crazy starving. I'm doing all the teaching. Ram Dass is kind of wheeling around grandly on a, in his wheelchair. I'm doing all the teaching and he's like eating all this lettuce and feeling fine. I'm saying like, this is terrible. So I waited till everyone went to sleep and I, I went to the refrigerator just, just looking for food. And I thank God I found that they had some at least snacks or they had brownies. And so, you know, I, I just munched down like three brownies and I went back to my room about 15 minutes later my mind and head is spinning <laughs> insanely. Like I'm like, and I have no, I have no traveling history. It wasn't my path. Uh -huh. Right. And so I, I, I figure I'm having a heart attack. I had no, I had no, I had no explanation. Why I'm oh, like, you right? got dosed. Oh my God. Right. Like three of them. So I feel like six hours, right. Just complete. Right. And like I stumble into the living room at like 6am and right at that time, Ram does kind of wheels himself in. I said, oh my God, what happened? And he looks at me, he says, what'd you do? And I said, I went to the refrigerator. He said, oh no. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, how many? And I said, three. And he said, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I survived. And it's actually very funny. I was, um, I was having um, dinner in Fairfax at our table and um, Jade Jayutal, right, was at dinner, who's a, a great um, chanter. And he tells me this story, not knowing it's me, that Ramdas is telling about when he first met his rabbi friend and what happened with these brownies. <laughs> so it's now become an epic, became an epic story. And he's a beautiful man. And, you know, so we sat, we sat and uh, I sat with him in LA and I believe I have a recording of this and I shared with him the unique self teaching. And he said to me afterwards, and it was just his beauty, he said, had I known this, it would have changed my whole life. Because essentially he said, I lived in a double bind. On the one hand, I had this enormous sense of ego. And I'm gonna quote him directly, said, I wanted to walk in the halls of power. My father was a powerful man. You know, I went to Harvard and everyone thinks I was excited about getting expelled from Harvard along with Timothy Leary. Well, I was and I wasn't, right? I wanted to be at Harvard. I wanted to be, mm -hmm. you know, I went East and, you know, I met Neem Crowley, Bob, and, you know, that whole, you know, beautiful story. You know, and that's when, you know, KD and him met and KD also became just a, a wonderful friend, you know, and he's a beautiful, beautiful man. But, but it's enormously confusing. It was confusing for Ramdas, he said. And, and what I thought was this desire to walk in halls of power and to impact and change history, right? He said, which I, I wanted to do all the time and I still want to do, right? I, I had to actually ascribe to ego. Right? That clearly was a mistake. Right? Because that, that must, that's my ego talking because everything Nim Crowley Baba told me was about disappearing. I, and I said to him, I said, well, let me ask you a question. And as we started this conversation, I said, did Nim Crowley Baba disappear? I mean, the way you describe him, he sounds like pretty distinct, mm. pretty distinct, utterly unique figure, one of a kind, mm -hmm. irreducible, 
And yet you're telling me that he's talking about disappearing. Do you think there's anything wrong with the story? Right? In other words, in other words, no, 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 there's something else happening here. And I began to unpack unique self, not as ego, not as your talents, not as your Myers-Briggs test, but unique self as the irreducibly unique expression of true self, right? In other words, the field generated Nimakroli Baba, who is your unique self? Who are you? You're an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and the love beauty and the love desire of all that is that lives in you as you and through you and that never was, is, or will be ever again. And as such, you have an irreducibly unique perspective and irreducible inequality of intimacy that allows you to give your unique gift to your unique field, right? And your unique field of intimacy and influence. And that is your unique responsibility and your unique obligation, right? And, and, and oh, that's Nim Crowley Baba. Of course, he said, of course, that's Nim Crowley Baba. Nim Crowley Baba didn't efface personality. He was actually intensely personal. Let's play for a second. And this is where for Ramdas, this was a, it was a gorgeous moment for him. So I said, let's look at that again. There's pre-personal, personal self, then you get personal self, separate self, false self. And then the traditions talk about, and that's the, the language that Ramdas used because he absorbed it from the traditions, right? The Eastern traditions. They talk about now you're going to the impersonal. We've all heard that, right? Move beyond your story, go to the impersonal. Okay, so that's true. That's true self. But then after the impersonal, you come back to the higher level personal. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's personal level one, separate self, the impersonal true self, but then beyond the impersonal, the personal comes back online an intensification of the personal, which is not the personal of your fag- fragmented, broken, traumatized, right, ego story. It's your unique self story. And actually, Ramdas, your desire to walk in the halls of power, part of it might be early pathology, but part of it was this realization that you've got a gift to give and that your unique circle of intimacy and influence might be the halls of power. And then actually, you wrote a book called Be Here Now, and that landed you as an icon in culture, which you never quite expected as you made those funny diagrams and sent it to the artist and you know put out this weird book that you thought a few people would buy, and all of a sudden it exploded in culture, and you felt like, oh my God, I want to give this gift. That wasn't your ego talking. That was actually reality having a Richard Alpert experience and renaming him Ramdas and wanting to speak through you to culture. And he said, my whole life, I was ripped apart because, because I, I didn't know how to resolve internally double bind that enormous sense of self and this teaching that I should be no self. Mm. So, so the way we resolve that is unique self. And it's unique self brings together separate self and true self in a full synergistic embrace a new emergent. Wow. Was there a spark of unique self when the Hellenistic cultures talked about the daemon? The daemon, a beautiful. Because the uh, daemon seems to be like there is some unique thing that you're driven towards that's yes. yours and only yours, and your daemon is yours. Yes, your daemon, your daemon. I, I love that you talk about daemon. And, you know, it's funny, right? When um, I, I wrote a, a an essay called The Evolutionary Emergent of Unique Self before the Unique Self book came out, and actually a, a, a an academic journal called the Journal of Integral Theory and Practice devoted an entire issue, a, it's a peer-reviewed academic journal, to unique self-theory as kind of, you know, you know, Ken called it the best, you know, theory of self we have and actually adopted it as a chapter in his own integral theory. And it was only the only chapter that, and it's why he wanted to have conversations with people. It's the beauty of Ken. He said, okay, what am I missing? So it became a, a kind of a key chapter. And so Ken and I were talking on the phone and I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about how to name the article. 
we're, we're going to name it the evolutionary emergent of unique self. And Ken and I, you know, we're just laughing about it because it is an evolutionary emergent. It's undeni undeniably new. And yet, as Aubrey asks, on the other hand, whenever something's undeniably new, evolution's not linear. Mm. That's a major mistake. And, and theorists, this notion of a linear evolution is bullshit. Evolution, you know, Michael Murphy, you know, my friend says evolution meanders. Mm -hmm. Right. It zigzags. David Graeber, the anthropologist we talked about, points out that, you know, there's moments where something emerges. It has a moment then it kind of disappears and then it kind of resurfaces. So there are, as you're pointing to intuitively, and I think, you know, wisely, there are fragrances of unique self that appear right in, in different places, both in, you know, both in psychology and physics and in ancient traditions and the daemon that you point to actually talk about in the Unique Self book, I think you're absolutely right. The daemon is the sense that there's something speaking through me, mm -hmm. that the field, right, is calling me. There's a sense of calling, the sense of being called. Your daemon calls you, and your daemon, right, is this larger entelechy. It's this larger sense that the field wants something from you, wants to speak through you, Right? It's what I call reality having an Aubrey experience, right? But that's your daemon, mm. right? And as the reality is moving through you, I'm not just living, I'm lived, right? right? And, and when, you actually, when, when you actually realize that your daemon is, is an incarnation, a unique incarnation of the eros of cosmos, daemon is one of the faces of eros, then you're actually lived as love. Mm -hmm. But you're not lived as love just as the field of love, right? Which is actually kind of insipid, which has got no fuck. Yeah. But right? it's got no eros, right? You're actually, you're lived as a unique expression of love. Aubrey is an irreducible unique expression of love. And, and whenever Aubrey tries to turn away from his unique self, from his calling, the daemon, right, steps in. Mm -hmm. And the daemon, right, you know, the daemon's not a person. The daemon is the intelligence of the field itself, which is, which is moving through you and calling you and playing with you. So that's the daemon. Mm -hmm. The demon is very, very important. That's a, that's a proto, I would call that a proto expression of unique self. I'll give you a second example. In, in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, they have what's called the 10 ox herding pictures. And the 10 ox herding pictures are pictures of enlightenment. And the 10th ox herding picture is after true self when the sage turns back to the marketplace, right? And this turning back to the marketplace is actually an expression of, okay, now I'm going to uniquely enter and engage reality and seek to, to transform it. So there, there are moments, right, of unique self that exist. And, and actually Nietzsche, right, who goes to kind of, to take it all down and says, yet the one thing we know, Nietzsche says, and thus spake Zarathustra, is that there's this ineluctable and irreducible, and I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, not quoting, you, that's unlike any other, you know, Oscar Wilde, you might as well be yourself because everyone else is taken, right? And mm -hmm, there's, a, mm -hmm. there's this sense that's, that's kind of undeniable, right? That what we know anthropologically is we know actually that my unique self matters and that's not my ego talking. Mm. And I just, to feel the relief in that, I mean, Aubreyness, is Aubreyness a function of, you know, Aubrey grew up with this place and that time and this, that, and this, that. And, you know, by the way, I haven't met your family. I'm looking forward to meet your mom tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. Yay, which is crazy exciting. You know, and, and so Aubrey's going to do what he's doing 
because somewhere along the way he got traumatized and therefore he needed to do a public thing. And isn't that a shame? And if he only would, would have worked that out therapeutically, he might've been a successful accountant, but you know, now he's got to do it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. But, but there's this little voice that says, right. Well, if I'm, if I'm shining in the world, am I compensating? Shining is basically viewed as a compensation, right? And, and, you know, and we're lost in our kind of grandiosity, but, but actually it's not grandiosity. It's grander. Human beings have grander. And actually what Aubrey's trying to do is, and we all deal with egoic structures and issues, but at core, you feel the call of unique self, right? Right. There's right. And, and, and we get to be friends. We get to love each other when we realize that we each have unique selves, right? And so all of a sudden jealousy disappears because jealousy means I want to hijack some of your separate self. The second I'm a unique self, I, I, I love you. I can be in devotion to your unique self. I can be ecstatic about your unique self because I'm in my unique self. So the only real meeting of love is between unique selves. True selves can't love each other because they're just true selves. There's no unique. Well, there's no subject object separation. There's no either. subject object separation. So there's no relationship. So there's no love. True right. selves can't love each other. Separate selves always have to be in what Hobbes called a state of war. So, <laughs> right. That's what Hobbes described in it. And, and John Locke, who's the best theorist of, of Western thought is really, you know, Hobbes in a velvet glove, but it's the same you know, it's Leo Strauss's phrase, right? Locke is Hobbes in a velvet glove. The same basic notion, which is where, you know, this notion of rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, the success story came from. And Max Weber called it the Protestant work ethic. There's a lot of names for it, but it's all basically rivalrous conflict, win-lose metrics. And as long as we're ultimately in a win-lose metrics, we can't be intimate with each other. We can't have shared identity. We can't really love each other. It's all ultimately, if Foucault told us, right, wrongly, but it's a power game. It's all a set of exchanges. It's all, you know, exchanged commodities, right? Heidegger writes, you know, kind of stuck in the same paradigm. You can never overcome loneliness. And it's always separation, right? It's tragic. It's only unique selves that can create we space, right? Unique self is when two unique selves come together who both have a unique contribution, right? They have, as, you know, as Walt Whitman said, right? And all of the din and hullaboo of reality, right? Right? you've got a verse to contribute, right? You've got a verse to contribute and your verse is not mine, right? Right. And imagine if we put our two verses together, what that could be. A podcast. A right podcast, now. right? Here we go, right? <laughs> Here we it's are. A, and it's a pod, <laughs> let there be a podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, it's wild, right? Luria, right? The lineage master of Hebrew wisdom, right? Talks about every person having a fundamental responsibility to write their unique letter in the cosmic scroll. And that every human being actually is a unique letter in the cosmic scroll. So now we begin to have the sense of unique self. Drum roll, it's not the end. And there's, as a lead-in to this next level of where you're going, is, and, and to tie in a few things, there's sometimes an idea that your unique self has a unique gift that is still somewhat blind to what the entire cosmos, the field itself, wants and and wants to draw forth from you. And right. this is this is a discussion I've had with our dear important. brother Eric Godzi. And he has this very kind of uh, a, he had at least a stricter idea about the daemon and it's like my daemon is here to do this and I would say and people would ask me, "Well, what are you going to do next?" And I'm like, "I don't know what I'm going to do next because I have to listen to the evolving nature of the field and find what the field wants from me." before I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, I have some ideas. I think I'm going to write some books. I think I'm going to do some things. But if 
the world degrades incredibly fast and one of these existential threats hit, I may be in a far different role as warrior or as, you know, caretaker or as a, a farmer. I don't fucking know. There may be a whole variety yes. of different things that I may put my unique gifts into dependent upon the field. And what this is leading to is what I believe you're going to is the unique self symphony. Yes. It's really listening to the field as your unique self and then allowing the gifts of your unique self to respond to a genuine need from the field. That, that's beautiful. And that is unique self symphony, right? And, and we'll get to it. There's, there's, there's in between unique self and unique self symphony, there's one more step we want to go, which will speak to a lot of what you just said. But just before we get to it, to the next level, because we have so far, let's just see where we are. Five. We've got pre-personal self. We've got number one, number two, separate self. Number three, false self. Number four, true self. Number five, unique self. That's where we are. Now, we're going to go to two more, and this is where it gets crazy exciting. Up to now, we've just been playing. Now it gets like insane in the most beautiful way. But we're going to get to evolutionary unique self and unique self symphony. The next two, mm -hmm. the last two. But, but let's just, before we get there, you know, you gave us a kind of a precursor foreshadowing and you point out that, You've got to be in relationship to the field and A. So the field is true self. And, but let me, let me add something to true self. And I had a, a wonderful exchange with um, our friend Daniel about um, a year ago, you know, a big Vox exchange, which is often how we talk um, on true self. And what I was sharing with Daniel is that true self is not just the field of consciousness, okay? True self is the field of consciousness and desire. It's mm -hmm. right. Consciousness is just awareness, but awareness never exists without desire. This is a very, very big deal, right? So in, let's say, Kashmir Shaivism, which is the source tradition of Buddhism, they talk about sat, chit, ananda. Sat is being, chit is consciousness. So the inside of being is consciousness. And then the inside of chit is ananda, which is love bliss or desire. So the inside of the inside, sat, chit, ananda, being consciousness desire, the inside of the inside is desire. Okay, wow, right? And so the field, it is not just the field of being, of consciousness, but that's an defacing of the field. So when Buddha talks about, or Buddhism talks about one taste, true but partial, my brothers and sisters, but it's two tastes. It's being and becoming, or it's stillness, and desire, right? Stillness, spacious, stillness, psychedelic journey, certain ways Aubrey might stack to bring you to kind of this field of spacious stillness. And then there's becoming turbulent, ecstatic, pulsing, urgent desire. And I remember having a conversation with a dear friend, Jerry Judd, who started a, a wonderful, not Jewish actually, but it was called Shalom Mountain. Jerry died at about 100 and was one of the great pioneers of the 20th century. And I was talking to Jerry about urgency and he was a true self devotee and he just got angry at me. He was about 96, so I, you know, you know, he cut some slack. He said, urgency, there's no urgency, that's separate self. I said, no, 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 there is urgency. There is a kind of ecstatic urgency and ecstatic urgency is the quality of unique self. The field is alive with, in me and I'm listening to the field. So when I'm a unique self, I'm an expression of true self and true self is the field and it's the field of intimate communion. It's the field of desire. It's the field of, of, of emergence. 
And that tells me two things about my unique self. One, my unique self is not a reified, unchanging eternity. It's an evolving eternity. It's an evolving quality of eternity. So I have an evolving unique self, A, your first point, right? And your second point, both of them critical, right? Is that you've got to be in constant permeability with the field. The field is pouring into you and you're pouring into the field. And there's this constant movement between you and the field and you're listening to the field and the field's listening to you. And, and there's this interpenetration that's always happening. And that field is the field of desire, right? So to be in true self means I'm participating in the field of desire. That's a big deal. The field of consciousness and desire, mm -hmm. right? The, the only, the, the only time desire gets to be problematic is if you think that you have local desire, mm. there are no local desires, right? All local desire is in the larger field of desire. And desire has integrity if it honors the field. Well, yeah, you could have localized false self pseudo. That's right. And desire, you can have unique desire. desire. Yeah. You can have unique, you have utterly unique, you have, you, right. you, have both, you have both authentic unique desire and you can have kind of false self surface desire. But desire itself is beautiful. Desire is the nature of reality. Reality is desire. Who are you? You are desire. Mm -hmm. And who is Aubrey? Aubrey is desire. That's who Aubrey is. That's true self. Actually, but he's a unique expression of desire, unique self. There's actually, we're actually making little lies every time we call anybody a noun. Actually, right. there's a little embedded lie. And I think there's a very cool term. And I think it's actually in one of your unpublished works of phenomenology that you actually go into it. And it's the term for actually taking something which is an evolutionary process. Denominalization process. of Denominal self. I thought it was that, but yeah, I didn't want to fuck it up. It's beautiful, right? And Stan Groff actually on our podcast was telling me that. He's just looked at me and he, he speaks slow and direct and he's got the wisdom of all of his years yeah. accumulated. The beautiful and he man. says, you are not Aubrey, you are Aubreying. You are Aubreying. And this I table is not a table, this table is tabling. Because a thousand years from now, this table will not be even what it even when it's not life, it's part of the evolutionary process. And, and, and it's so, a first principle, first value. And so people don't get lost, right? And so the table, right, is going to transmute, right? You know, without an an obvious sense of will, Aubreyness. Just so we can distinguish between those two, Aubreyness is a distinct consciousness. Mm -hmm. That consciousness is embedded in a body. That body is part of the consciousness, and we have we'll have to come back to this before we finish today. And, and although Aubrey is not a a unique self in a meat sack, because actually his bodiness, his embodiment is is ineradicably not separate and embedded in and inextricably interincluded right in his self in his unique self. Nonetheless, right, his unique self is not dependent on his body. Mm -hmm. So if God forbid we cut off Mark's arm or Aubrey's arm, but let's say Mark's, I don't want to be cutting off your arm or mine, but you cut off your arm, right, you're still you, right? You cut off your leg, you're, you're still you, right? You still have your unique self. And, and ultimately, we well, have an enormous— I, I kind of feel like you're—I push back a little that that is a, that is a significant evolution of your unique self. Actually, you, you lose something of your uniqueness and when you cut off your arm and potentially, and you gain. potentially gain another part. Right. And so, and, you, and you, uh, one example of this, for example, people go through and right now it, it's a crazy, it, we're in a crazy time, a uh, medical time. Mm -hmm. So fecal transplants are showing some of the most promising psychological psychiatric benefit. So if you actually change your gut flora with someone who has right. healthy neurochemistry, because 
everybody you know, has heard the term that the gut is the second brain. Right. Well, fecal transplant actually puts new microbiome in your gut. You're producing new neurotransmitters. Massive shifts in personality start to happen. When they've done this in mice, mice that were had a tendency for obesity, you switch the you know, you switch the the fecal biome and then with a mouse, mouse that's super athletic and loves running on the wheel, then the actual personality of that mouse changes right. and evolves. So, and this, so this is a big this is a big deal. So so let's stop for a second. So let's just see where we are. And I apologize, it's an insincere apology, but for a second, let me just like let me just locate where we are because I wanna let's go into this for a second without losing our thread, which is yeah. so we're up to unique self. We're taking, a, we're taking a little commercial break to talk about in this level of unique self, what's the relationship between the mind and the body? Mm-hmm. Because that's, that's where we haven't gotten to evolutionary unique self and we haven't gotten to unique self-symphony. And so you point out, and you made this point in the beginning, right, mm-hmm. which, which, was a, which is a beautiful point, and we're gonna just, we'll, we'll, we'll play with this for a second to see if we can clarify it, is that you know, the dualistic idea, right, which reigns you know, in the 16th and 17th century, which is that there's a mind and a body, and they're actually two utterly distinct worlds. And by the way, 17th century dualism became 19th century materialism, mm-hmm. right? Because basically they made a circle. Let's say, like, draw a circle, cut the circle in half. On top, you've got spirit, the word they use. And the bottom, you have matter, right? And so those are two completely separate worlds. Spirit actually steps in and directly runs the world of matter, but they're two completely, utterly separate worlds. Right now, the entire movement of science went against that, and science began to realize that those the, 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 those worlds are not separate worlds, and there was less and less ways to measure spirit and the ways that science was doing quantitative measurement. So by the time we got to the 19th century, people looked at that circle and said, "Let's just lop off the top." Mm-hmm. Right. So 17th century dualism became 19th century materialism. Now you're pointing to right something which is absolutely true. I call what you're pointing to pan-interiority. And pan-interiority is this realization. There's lots of different names from lots of different shades of it. Some people talk about panpsychism, right? Whitehead called the, talked about pan-experientialism. I won't bore everyone in this point to kind of talk about the distinctions and why we coined, you know, um, a new term, Zach and I, Zach Stein, pan-interiority. But, but pan-interiority basically means that you can't split in the manifest world between reflective, the depth of self-reflective mind and the body, that the body's actually, as you say, not a meat sack, the body's intelligent, mm-hmm. it's living, it's alive, and there's actually an inextricable union between exterior and interior. You can't actually split them. It's not that there's spirit, right, and matter. No, actually everything is both interior and exterior and they affect each other, which begins to introduce parapsychology, mm-hmm. begins to introduce, you know, continuity of consciousness, begins to, you know, to explain, right, right, all of the phenomena we have of, you know, telepathy, mm-hmm. all of the phenomena we have, which are poltergeists, all the phenomena we have of, you know, out-of-body experiences, all of the phenomena we have of, you know, mediums, Right. In other words, that whole realm of parapsychology, which is an empirical realm. And anyone who doesn't think it's an empirical realm is just an idiot. Right. <laughs> I apologize. Right. It's just, I mean, it's just, just stupidity. Right. In other words, there's so much information. And William James at Harvard and Henry Sedgwick, right, with his wife Edith at, you know, um, Cambridge started the British and then the American Psychical Society. There's 130 years 
of probably the most rigorous research done, which is establishes the empirical validity of parapsychology, right? Which is based on this notion that actually, right, the, the body, heart, mind are, are kind of an entire oneness. They're part of a larger union. They affect each other. They move together. It's why in psychoneuroimmunology, right, we proved what our grandmothers knew, psychoneuroimmunology, that, that you know, between the hypothalamus and the frontal cortex, right, the amygdala, right, there's very, very clear correlative relationships. They affect each other, meaning, right, my attitude, right, affects my physical performance, my, my grief, right, makes me sick, right? My partner dies who I've been with for 40 years. I don't feel I have a purpose in life, right? Within six months, right? I die, right? In other words, there's very clear relationships. And yet, and yet that entire body of work also tells us that the, the Aubrey-ness, right? The quality of Aubrey-ness transcends, has a continuity of consciousness. So that body, which obviously I've trained, right? To be clear about that. Right? <laughs> yeah. We always give on it, you know, the, the credit, yeah. but that's okay, I right? I saw you doing those kettlebell swings. It yeah, was, no, totally, it was, totally. It impressive. It's actually weird. When Sometimes when I take off my shirt, people say, you don't see my head, is that Aubrey? It just happens all the time. I I, I would weird? expect Kyle. Kyle, right? yeah. No, Kyle. No, no one ever says Kyle. Hot damn. Kyle. Your hyperbole only goes so far? <laughs> it only goes so far. Uh, okay, like, fair enough. Only... I didn't know that there was bounds. I thought we were playing a game no, of no, no, extremes. No, 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 no. It's a fair point. Okay, Kyle, I'm in. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> right, but but so so in other words, in other words, so Aubrey-ness, there's a continuity of consciousness. We have an enormous amount of empirical evidence for the continuity of consciousness of Aubrey-ness. And even Buddhism, right, that kind of says, I don't know, right, you know, I'm one with the field of consciousness, slips in unique self kind of surreptitiously without telling you it does by calling it reincarnation. Yep. Right? Yeah, and, and this is, and, and again, to, to counter the very thing that I previously described, my dear brother, Parker Sherry. Parker Sherry. Parker Sherry. And my, I have in my own practices, again, as my own experiential psychonaut, have what I believe to be is the ability to actually communicate with Parker. I've had conversations with Parker, which have been wildly beautiful and rich and surprising. And you know, it's surprising when it makes you laugh. Yeah. You know, like when you hear something from them, laughter comes from something that you haven't thought through and you wouldn't expect. Right. And, and in these kind of conversations in the medicine, in this, in this state, and I'll find myself chuckling because he was saying something that only Parker could right. say, and it feels, and again, people could say, that's just my memory playing out in a program. Okay, whatever. I can't prove that it's not, but I feel in my body and in my consciousness that I'm having that communication with Parker who recently passed. And so there is this continuity that extends beyond the body. So, so that, that is at, right. So there is, that's correct. In other words, in other words, and there is a continuity of consciousness that's real. So on the one hand, I'm one with the body. Mm-hmm. Right, and the body's not just a temple for the soul, right? And so th- that that's that's what you were trying to point towards in the beginning. And the way that the lineage talks about it, at least one lineage, says that we talk about light and vessels, and that we used to think that the body was the vessel for the soul, which is the light, right? And one thinker, Shnurzalman of Laadi, not something I would name your kid, by the way, right? You know, points out that. And this is a complex interior science statement, but it means higher is the source of the vessels than the source of the light. 
Meaning the body, which is the vessel, is not just the light, is actually higher than the source of the light, meaning the body is fully intelligent and alive, and that as long as we're in this manifest world, there's no Cartesian dualism, right? The body, right, and heart, or the interior and exterior, are one fully organismic expression of livingness, and there's a continuity of consciousness beyond this body. So sorry to say, you're gonna have to start training again next time, right? And you know, and you might be a woman, right? Which would be beautiful. What's an, what's an interesting? And this I think is you'd, this, be, you'd be a hot woman, by the way. I, I could be. You could be. Depends. Depends. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that I'm curious about is, and and I don't know this from my understanding of the cosmos, but I'm curious as to whether evolution, because we're we're leading towards the evolution of unique self. I'm curious as to whether evolution actually can happen in the discarnate expression of the continuity of consciousness or whether actually reincarnation <laughs> is right. necessary I love, for I love, evolution. I love you, Aubrey. I love when you, when you, when we're trying to get to, you know, fucking evolution or unique self and you <laughs> throw in like another huge topic, right? Just as like, you know, just kind of slur. So that's a great question. In other words, and it's actually a beautiful inquiry, but let me go back one step and then forward one step because you said about and, you know, I landed, you know, to do, you know, this dialogue to, for us to spend this week in, in deep study and practice. I landed actually the night that, that your friend Parker Sherry passed. Yeah. And so he's obviously been with us this week and I didn't have the privilege to know him, but you and I got to sit on the couch and talk about him and, you know, and, and you know, to hear your stories about him, which is, which is the practice when a person passes is to tell mm -hmm. stories, you know, in the most beautiful way and to invoke him, which, which you have. And, you know, as you were describing you know, your conversation with Parker Sherry, you said, you know, and people could say, it's just, you know, my memory reflects and I can't prove it. Although you can't prove it in ways that are obviously measurable. First off, you know, in your own anthroontology, anthroontology, anthro, my own humanness ontology, the realness that I directly access through my interior, you actually have a sense of its absolute realness, number one, which is critical in terms of validating it. But number two, and we're not going to go down this road now, and it's definitely a, a separate dialogue, but we actually at this point have empirical information, which indicates to us that in any form of rational thought, right, the only way we can explain an enormous amount of empirical information, which cannot be explained in any other way than the continuity of consciousness after this life. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what we call proof, we have better quote unquote proof right, for the continuity of consciousness than we do for most scientific theorems that build science. That's a mm -hmm. very, very big deal to realize. And that was not true 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the evolution of consciousness. And it's, we've gathered information in a new way. We've collated that information. So just give you one example. Ian Stevens at the University of Virginia and, and Michael, Michael Murphy funded it, collected about 2,600 cases of reincarnation, which he then documented. And then he investigated very, very carefully, right? You know, X amount of them, right? And the only valid hypothesis for a kid living in place X, you know, who's born, you know, 10 months after a kid in place Y, who's, you know, you know, massive amounts of miles away, no cultural, you know, exchange between them. And, and Stephen's researchers checked very, very carefully for any possibility of deception at a level which most scientific experiments, none actually even vaguely approach. And this kid in place Y knows everything about place X, remembers all of these memories from place X, has a mark, you know, let's say where an arrow went through, you know, kid one, 
as a mark, you know, in his body at the exact same place with a full set of memories that are fully available to him that live in him, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just a quick, you know, snapshot. And the only plausible rational explanation is that there's a continuity of consciousness. And that's just one, that's just one of about six different pieces of valid research. So for someone to dismiss continuity of consciousness today, right, that's not actually a valid position for a rational person. And, you know, Michael Murphy, who again, is the, the president of Esalen and, and Michael and I had a, a number of years of just beautiful conversation. And he used to come to our board meetings and we held him in Mill Valley where he lived of the, of the think tank. And Michael got up and he said, you know, I used to say I was an agnostic about reincarnation and Michael is very scientifically based. And at a certain point I began to feel sleazy. Mm. I actually felt like I was a sleazy person because I, I'm not an agnostic. All the rational information is one way. And I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to be dismissed as woo-woo, right? So I said, I realized I was actually lying. I was actually completely out of integrity. So we actually have an enormous amount of evidence for continuity of consciousness. And there's no rational being that can easily dismiss that, right? It actually is the best explanation we have of an enormous amount of empirical evidence. That's just a bracket. And, bracket and, and bracket. let me, dangerously, I'm going to lob another bracket <laughs> without trying to derail us too We much, haven't even gotten to your first further, lob, by the way. Yes, there's right, right. another bracket that's imminent and a waiting. A bracket within a bracket. A bracket within a bracket. Hot damn. What, what, is the, what is the cultural, just really quickly, 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 what do you think is the cultural pressure to actually not believe in the continuity of consciousness? Why do we desire collectively? What is the collective zeitgeist desire to claim that there is no continuity of consciousness. Why are we trying comes, to do this? It, it comes from actually from a sacred place, right? In other words, in other words, the religions hijacked heaven, right? And the religions used heaven, right? To create control, right? And the road to heaven was lined with obedience to a, a particular set of dictates, right, from a particular religion that actually claimed that only its adherents got into heaven, yeah. right? And immortality was, was essentially used to avoid, right, the, the metaphysical and spiritual and moral obligation, right, to actually transform this world. So Christianity, remember Crosby, Still, Nash, and Young, before our time, but, you know, whatever, you know, you know, you know, it was something like, you know, how many people died in the name of Christ? I can't believe it all, right? In other words, so, so people get massacred both by Buddhist sects massacring each other and Christian sects massacring each other and Sunnis and Shiites massacring each other, but they're doing it, you know, for the sake of the integrity of their religion, right? And for the sake of ensuring, right, that let's say the Christian, right, inquisition, that the people that they're murdering will get to heaven, right? They'll have immortality of the soul. So in other words, or, or the obligation to actually treat right, you know, profound suffering, right, the notion that that person's now going to go to the next world, right, actually somehow frees us of our obligation to create heaven on earth. Mm. So there was actually an impulse in modernity, which was a holy impulse, which was, let's fucking create heaven on earth. Mm. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful impulse. And, and heaven or, you know, you know, you know, was caricatured as harps playing and it's probably not harps, probably violins. Mm -hmm. So I, I get they got that wrong, mm -hmm. but heaven was a caricature, right? It became an exit, right? you know, from this world. And we actually, in order to act just like in a marriage, you know, you know, I always, whenever I'm working with a couple, I always say, you got to close the exits. Once yeah. you got a lot of exits, yeah, yeah, yeah. once you got a lot of exits, right? So in order to actually stay and work this world, there was a sense that modernity had that you got to close the exits and it wasn't wrong, right? However, when you close the exits in a way in which you basically then say, and the nature of this world is 
purely materialist, and it's actually over when it's over, you actually create despair, mm. right? Because it's actually a violation, A, of what we know, as we just pointed out empirically. I also know it anthropologically, and it's completely fucked up morally, right? <laughs> because it's completely clear that fairness does not happen at this moment in time for most human beings in this lifetime. You cannot actually understand and deal, right, with the suffering in the world, right, if you limit, right, reality to the space of one lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's just, you can't, yep. right? So, you, so if you know in your body that reality is holding a dimension of fairness, you also have what I would call an anthroontological portal into the reality of the continuity of consciousness. So that's a different portal. In other words, I, we, we've described now two different portals. One portal into the continuity of consciousness is empirical information that validates it. One. A second portal is, right, there's actually 12 doors, which we're not going to talk about now. There's 12 anthropological doors where you can get a direct first person knowing of the continuity of consciousness. And one of them is the experience of fairness, that fairness is, is a core structure of reality. And then the realization that fairness never happens right, right, for most human beings within one lifetime. So your moral sense tells you right, that it can't be over when it's over. Right? That's actually fascinating. So there's 12 anthropological doors. There's also third, a philosophical door, which is pan-interiority, right, which is philosophically, which we're not going to work out now, the best understanding of the human being is continuity of consciousness. So there's these three different doors, which is not our topic, yep. right? Right. <laughs> well, and, that was and, your I fault. Think, and I think maybe uh, totally, and there's another topic that we still can, or maybe we can just, well, no, no, let's bracket. pick it up for a second. But, uh, as you put but, it out. but ultimately what this is speaking to is not only the, the, who are you question, but it's also kind of where leaving breadcrumbs to where are you? It's total breadcrumbs to, starting total to understand this second. To and, and these questions, of course, you have to you actually have to bleed them into each other. They, they have to, to actually bleed into sense. each other. And let's bracket the, and, and just I want to honor the other lob that you did, lob as the, which is the opposite of lobotomy. Lob, lob means <laughs> yeah. let's think, let's think yeah. about that, which you said, is evolution only in incarnate form mm -hmm. or in the worlds between worlds, which are described by the interior sciences? And by the way, you can get an anthropological knowing to the worlds between worlds. In other words, you were five, six days ago. And again, I, I, I now say this with just so much gentleness and respect because to invoke a person you didn't know and your friend, I want to do it with just enormous respect. You were just with your friend seven days ago, you know, Parker Sherry. Now he's not here, right? Where did he go? I was with my friend recently a few years ago, Barbara Marks Hubbard, you know, and she was literally, we were about to do a, a, a program together and we got on the phone. She had had an incident. She was in the hospital. She, you know, I said, let me talk to her. She got on the phone. She said, Mark, with this beautiful delight. It was the last word she spoke. And I flew to, you know, to her bedside and she died a couple of days later. But it was so clear in my embodied sense that Barbara wasn't gone. Yeah. Where'd she go to New Jersey? Right. I mean, in other words, mm. and I, but I had a direct realization like you had with Parker, right, of, of the, the continuity of consciousness. And so you realize now, now, does the interior sciences have an enormous conversation, which, and that really, that really is too much of a divergence. We won't go there. It's a different conversation, but there's an enormous conversation about the worlds between worlds, right? And about the evolution that happens in them. Yeah. So, so let's just say that's addressed by the interior sciences, right? Clearly, we've got to be very, very careful and humble there when we move between certainty and uncertainty. Sure. Because we've never been there. 
Yep. You know, and, and we don't have direct information. We can't claim dogmatic information. We got to hold, you know, trembling before reality, the mystery, and yet gather the informations we have, you know, with a kind of tender tentativeness, but there's an enormous depth in the interior sciences, you know, on this topic that deserves address. Bracket, evolutionary unique self. Evolutionary unique self. And just to close in my own, please, my own please, thinking please, on brother. that, I asked a question. And please, brother. The, if you consider that evolution is a first principle and first value, everything evolves, all is evolving, then evolution must go all the way up and all the way down. Yes. So evolution must occur in the worlds, nicely between done. worlds as nicely, well. Nicely. And it's also one interesting thing that I got from my, my brother, Matthias De Stefano, who remembers his past lives. And if you, this is another way that if you want to just feel it in your body, listen to him sing Atlantean songs that he sang as a mother to his child in the civilization of Chem. Which if, and just feel what those songs evoke in you and see if that isn't a lullaby that was sung and is sung in our ancestral memory. But, you know, the, what he says is that in the world between worlds, we're stepping into a place of timelessness. And this is another big bracket that I just want to share this little piece. And in that, in that moment is both an eternity of time spent in the world between worlds, because there is no time, and also an instant right. reincarnation. Right. And so it is possible that actually it's our understanding of time that makes this seem contradictory when it's actually paradoxical the paradox of an infinite amount of time between Gorgeous. worlds and an instant reincarnation in some form as matter and yes. maybe matter is then therefore inextricably woven to evolution which is always happening because eternity and instant is happening at the same time in this grand cosmic paradox but i think the key point of this is that I believe that we would probably both agree that evolution is the first principle, first so that, value so of that, the cosmos. So, so, so you, you said three things, and and of course we 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 have this beautiful, gorgeous, beautiful risk. But it's a beautiful risk is that that you know we're we're in a deep set of conversations, and so something emerges, and it's part of this this other conversation. So that was the <laughs> that was the evolution thing. But but you, you, you landed it exactly correctly, right? Which is that evolution itself is 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 a an actual first principle and first value of cosmos and what evolution means is is that reality is a series of transformations mm -hmm. that's the nature of reality evolution equals reality is a series of transformations and if reality is both manifest and unmanifest it's both interiors and exteriors right then there's no reason to suggest and the interior sciences realize this that the transformations end Mm -hmm. And at the end of the space, mm -hmm. right, of one finite lifetime, transformation continues. So that's one, you know, and, and that's critical. That's to realize that evolution is the first principle and first value, meaning the process of transformation is a first principle and first value. And the reason that matters, friends, is that that means that our own impulse towards transformation, right, is not, right, actually a violation, right? It's not that there's no place to go right? And that Buddhist sense of just sit still, right? And B, where you're trying to get, there's no place to get. Well, actually there is my friend, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Actually, it's not just being, it's also becoming, right? And what, what sometimes Buddhism does kind of, when I say Buddhism, I mean kind of popular renditions of Buddhism, but also often, often, it, you know, structural forms of, of certain forms of mysticism is basically defy evolution. In other words, it took us quite a few billion years to get to a human neocortex, right? That can actually, right? think about its own transformation, be conscious of its own evolution, 
and to actually cut off the frontal lobe of the human neocortex and to make a regressive move and say, I'm just going to be in a pure state of beingness is actually a huge mistake. Being and becoming are interincluded in each other. Now, the Matthias, you invoked your friend Matthias, you spoke to me about, he's one of the people we said, we have to all meet each other. We'll do that at some point and raise some, some glasses of wine. I don't have a memory of, of past lives. That's a me very neither. beautiful gift. Never had, never had one of all the it's things that I've done and every medicine I've taken. I've never beautiful, had a memory of beautiful a past gift life. that Matthias has. Luria, right? Um, one of my teachers, right? Had a gift of, of both his own past life. He had a very particular unique gift of knowing other people's past lives. I have in work with people, I can get a sense sometimes of other people's past lives, but, but not a clear sense. I don't have Matthias's sense. That's a very beautiful gift that he has, which I want to just, you know, you know, beautifully He describes honor. it as like, uh, he says that if we're all different cells in the, in the one organism that he's, and different organs have different organs, there's liver cells, yeah, there's beautiful. pancreas cells. He's a memory cell. Yeah, and that's beautiful. Just, it's just one of the organs of yeah, it's beautiful. the human cosmos. And, and that that's unique that self. That's, that, that's, that's a his particular, unique self. That's a particular, and that's his unique gift. Yep, right? totally. And, and by the way, right, and to, to validate Matthias, right, we actually have, right, this expression, this memory cell appears in all traditions at all times. We, we've always had people like that. And again, I have, I have a fragrance of it, you know, in particular places so I can, I can feel it. But we also have enormous right? Empirical information that that's real. So that's an important piece of information that you can't take off the table yeah. and be a rational person. Yeah. Right? That's critical. So now we have a drum roll. It's drum roll time. Yes. So we are at evolutionary unique selves. So let's just see where we are for a second. Now it, 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 in some sense, we're at the end of our dialogue, but this is actually, it gets, this is the most exciting part, which leads us into, you know, our, our second dialogue where we start talking about how does this play in sexuality? How does it play in love? How does it play in joy? What's the relationship of why is unique self the only antidote to pornography? What does those two things possibly even have to do with each other? People's right. mind is just like, what? Right, is it, and they're, they're completely Whoa. related. Why is your unique sexuality the only response to kind of a, an impersonal sexuality, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's so much, right, to say, and how does it change psychology? How does it change education, my friend? Zach Stein, right, wrote a chapter on our unique self theory in his book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, which is enormously important, right? And we actually have people in psychology, in business, right, in education, you know, in economics, who are actually working on unique self volumes, right, which apply unique self to all dimensions of the ecosystem of human life. So it actually, it's, it's the change that changes everything. Charles Taylor wasn't wrong. If you get right the answer to the question of who am I, when I say get right, the best response that includes the most in an eloquent second simplicity. So everything we're talking about today is second simplicity. So, you know, first simplicity sloganing doesn't work. You got to do all the complexity, level two. So first level, first simplicity, level two, complexity. And it's a core model I've deployed for years. And then Level three is second simplicity, where we've kind of integrated all of the complexity, and now we're able to talk in these kind of orienting generalizations that are actually accurate and allow us to make sense of reality mm -hmm. while we stand before the mystery, right? So in that light, let's just say a couple of things before we hit evolutionary unique self. Let's just take a look, and now it gets, gets very exciting and very elegant. So pre-personal self, that's where we started. We went from pre-personal to the personal. 
And the personal was separate self and false self. Then we went to true self, which calls itself the impersonal, right? That's now the impersonal. Then we said, no, but that's not the height. That's not the apex, right? As the traditions thought, actually above that is the personal beyond the impersonal, level two personal, which is unique self. Unique self, which is the discretion of infinity in a person, right? My personhood is the irreducibly unique expression of the field, right? That's unique self. And when I really get that, right, that catapults me naturally to number six, evolutionary unique self. And evolutionary unique self simply said is the realized unique self or unique self in an evolutionary context, unique self with an evolutionary relationship to life. Mm -hmm. Meaning, right, I can actually say seriously the statement, who am I? I am evolution in person. It's a wild sentence. True self says, I am being in person. Mm. I'm the eternity of being in person. But in that true self said, my person disappears. Unique self says, no, no, no. I'm being uniquely. I'm being seeing through a unique set of eyes, right? I'm the unique set of eyes, the unique quality of intimacy, the unique perspective of <gasps> true self. Mm. Evolutionary unique self says, I'm evolution in person. Right? I am the personal face of the evolutionary impulse. The evolutionary impulse actually beats in me. And the, the force, the pulse, the throbbing of the entire evolutionary impulse is awake and alive in me. And that's actually, first off, physically true. Literally, right? Cosmogenesis, the entire evolutionary process is recapitulated in embryogenesis right? All of the previous levels of evolution quite literally live in me, interiors and exteriors. It's all living in me. And I, when I awaken to the realization that evolution lives in me, that's conscious evolution. Not gorgeous. Mm. Right? And I had a, a big argument with my dear friend who I invoked earlier, Barbara Marks Hubbard, in the last years of her life, which we, we came to a full agreement on, right? Before she passed, and, and we, we, we've done, you know, dialogues about it. It's not just, uh, all right, she passed. She agreed with me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Barbara, I wouldn't do that to you, my love. Right. And we, we, we dialogued about it publicly. Barbara used to talk about conscious evolution as evolution, becoming aware of itself in the human being. Right. You know, up to now, she said it was evolution by chance. And in that she wrongly adapted and regretted, you know, we talked about it deeply, kind of the neo-Darwinian synthesis, which was the world was by chance. We've, we've long rejected that right at the leading edges of science, although it's still part of the standard, you know, common narrative and science hasn't yet caught up with itself and that needs to happen. But that's actually not true. In other words, when evolution generated photosynthesis, I mean, I mean, I could spend a day just talking about photosynthesis, but it's the most stunning, you know, elaborate, you know, elaborate's not, I can't use the word elaborate. It's exponentially beautiful. It's exponentially complex. It's exponentially dazzling in the amount that's happening, right? Right. In the photosynthesis, right. It's just so beyond imagination. If you want to just, you go up online and just, you know, just bring up even an E. coli bacteria and look what's happening there. And you'll just be like dazzled by the complexity and the movements of intimacy and the configurations. Now exponentialize that you get photosynthesis. All that's happening way before there's a human neocortex. All right, but evolution was doing that by chance, unconsciously, not likely. 
Not likely. It's just, it's just impossible. That has nothing to do with intelligent design. That's not a Christian intelligent design idea that there's a God outside the cosmos, right, who has, right, a plan that's being, you know, puppeteered. No, it's actually a much more fascinating and beautiful reality in which we understand that reality is both held in a larger intelligence, and that larger intelligence inheres in reality. That larger intelligence is an inherent process of reality itself. It's the ceaseless inherent creativity of cosmos, which is reaching towards, right, its own inherent plot lines. And that app has a lot to do with where are we, which is, you know, the love story of the universe and, and why we're saying that that's, that's our where are we question, the second question. So I'm going to, you know, bracket that for a second. But evolution, right, is this process that's alive in me. So I literally am evolution. That's actually true. I, I don't, we talk about evolution in school as a theory. Evolution is not a theory. <laughs> evolution is my identity, mm -hmm. right? I am the personal face of the evolutionary impulse. And when I awaken to that realization, that's conscious evolution. It's not that evolution was unconscious. And then the human being came along, right? At a particular stage in history right now, and it became conscious. Well, that actually ignores everything that happened before the human being. But actually evolution clearly was was in some sense intelligent consciousness, right, to generate photosynthesis and to generate the entire evolutionary process, right, of unimaginable, unimaginable, dazzling, you know, mathematical, you know, genius and complexity, right, all before the human neocortex. So the human being, right, 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 human being awakens, and then the human being goes through all these stages of evolution, but then, then at some point, the human being becomes aware, and that come point is now, becomes aware of the entire evolutionary story. Wow. That's new. We've never been aware of the entire evolutionary story and then been able to locate ourselves in that story, to realize that we're part of that story, that, that we're actually expressions of that story, that story is happening through us. We're its storytellers. We're also writing its next chapters. That's conscious evolution. Yeah. And, That's stunning. And, evo and evoking story is important as well because, you know, my dear friend, Ted Decker, when I was asking him and he's a, a amazing storyteller sold over 10 million books and yeah he said look story is really simple it's a series of things that happen to a character or characters that cause them to transform that so, so, that is that is a, that is a series it's the it's the transformation of of characters right. in a story right so, and so that's <laughs> that's it that's what we're participating yes, in yes yes and, and this is big and and i'm just gonna i'm going to with permission allow you to seduce me only partial here, <laughs> right? Because as you know, my wicked friend, right? There's a lot to say about story, yes, right? And we're going to say it. And, and we're just gonna, not, we're gonna just say not it. today. Just not today. But, but let's just, just because you threw that sentence in, let's just go back for a second. Okay. So the pre-personal self, right? Doesn't have its own story. It's part of the larger story that the, the baby is part of the mother's story. There's no differentiation of an individuated story. Separate self begins to realize, oh, I have a story. False self is a distortion of that story. That story gets distorted. It's a distorted plot line. Then you get to true self and true self, actually, which is why most true self teachers say move beyond your story. No, don't get stuck in your story, right? Your story is actually extra. It's a problem, right? Get to this place where you're beyond story. Unique self then returns story. Unique self says, no, no, your ego story is limited, true, but partial. 
You got to move beyond story. You're part of the larger story of a cosmos, not just the story of consciousness, the story of desire. You're a unique expression of the story of desire. You are your deepest heart's desire as part of this larger story of desire. So we bring story back on in unique self. We actually reclaim the dignity of story. And then in evolutionary unique self, you realize your story is chapter and verse in the larger story of the cosmos. Which right? is a love wow. story. Now, which is a love story? <laughs> we'll get is, to that which, too. Which is, which is, and that's that's our second question about where are we? And just for those listening and saying, oh wow, they're just saying it's a love story. No, no, no. You know, I've spent the last, you know, and Auburn and I have been in deep conversation the last twenty five years, right, on kind of understanding this notion of reality as a love story, this amorous cosmos, and that's actually we're going to show that it's actually the most validated empirically and based on all the information we have, the best way to understand cosmos right, on all levels. So that's, a, it's a very big claim. And we're going to show that claim to be in the end, self-evidently obvious and in beautiful and stunning. And the realization that we live in this amorous cosmos in this intimate universe, in this cosmorotic universe. But, but just for now, let's, let's go back. We just showed story through all the levels of self. What we're going to actually talk about when we talk about where are we, we're going to actually show that this notion of reality as a story is even before the human being. That reality itself, the whole thing has a narrative arc. That story is a quality of reality itself. That just like evolution, a series of transformation, series of transformations, just like uniqueness, right? Just like eros, our first principles and first values of cosmos, story itself, the narrative arc is actually a first principle and first value of cosmos. And what that means, you know, we'll get to in a kind of deep way, but I, I hope, friends, we've earned your trust in that, you know, we say that rigorously, right? Not, mm -hmm. you know, it's not casual. Having said that, right, since we're just about three hours in, let's get to evolutionary unique self. We just explained evolutionary unique self, at least in broad brush terms. I am evolution. Now, evolution is desire, right? I'm the personal face of the evolutionary desire, but not any desire. I've got to clarify my desire, not my surface desire, not my ego's casual desire, right? But actually my deepest heart's desire is the desire of evolution. My deepest heart's desire is God desiring through me, right? In other words, you know, you and I talked about yesterday in a different context of study, we talked about what does it mean to love God? It's to let God see through your eyes and it's to let God desire through you. In other words, if I actually understand that there's a field, there's a God field, God's both a, a personal force and the quality of the entire field, the infinity of personhood, the infinity of intimacy, which is, again, a different conversation. But if I actually have that realization, which is a deep realization, which we'll get to in a, a different conversation, then I actually realize, oh, I'm a unique expression of that field. That's a very big deal. So if reality is desire, which is actually how the interior sciences understand it, how I can find it anthropologically, because everything that drives me is desire, right? And how evolutionary science understands it, right? Right? Evolution desires, right, to advance in novelty. Evolution is reaching for new emergence. It's reaching for more consciousness and more complexity and more creativity and more uniqueness, all plot lines of cosmos, right? If I actually get that, then I get, oh, so if I'm evolution and I clarify my desire, and I actually awaken to, to knowing that evolution's moving through me, meaning I've awakened from unconscious evolution to conscious evolution. 
which means I've now awakened from unconscious uniqueness to conscious uniqueness. I realized that my unique desire is the unique desire of evolution, that evolution's desiring through me, then it's really important to clarify what's my true deepest heart's desire. Now that really matters because I am the leading edge of evolution, right? That I am, you can imagine evolution as being 50-50 on the scale and my desire tips the whole scale, right? So my clarified heart's desire is the desire of divinity discreetly expressed as me uniquely. Divinity can't desire that next step other than through me. I am, my deepest heart's desire is the desire of evolution because evolution is just another word for desire. Evolution is evolutionary desire. So I am the unique incarnation of evolutionary desire. As such, I can begin to play my instrument. Number seven, drum roll. I guess I shouldn't quit my job and become a drummer. I got that. Okay. So it wasn't such a good chanting. Chanting. Stay with chanting. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Stay with chanting. So, so as evolutionary unique self, I participate in unique self symphony. Mm. Wow. And unique self symphony means unique self symphony is the new structure of evolutionary intimacy. Reality is the progressive deepening of intimacies. That's a big sentence, which we're going to have to validate in a different dialogue. But a reality is more and more intimacy, wider and wider fields of shared identity. And as we get to this new level and this new human level of evolutionary intimacy, I realize I'm not in a world which is rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, but I'm also not in a world which is just organismic where we all kind of become part of the kind of one mind, which is a kind of totalitarian notion. Actually, reality is a unique self-symphony. And if I'm actually living my unique self and my evolutionary unique self, then I have an instrument to play in the unique self symphony. There's a song I can sing. There's a poem I can write. There's a way of living, laughing, loving that's uniquely mine and mine alone. As I listen to the music, the instruments of everyone else in the symphony, because that's the way you play in a symphony. I'm deeply attuned, uh, literally attuned to the field, right? I hear all the other instruments and yet, I'm distinctly playing my instrument. It's a unique self-symphony, but it's not just a unique self-symphony. It's not just that I'm playing Beethoven's score uniquely, which is what a symphony does. It's a unique self-jazz symphony. Yeah, it's like, or like a Grateful Dead when they're just finished at the end of the song and they got 20 minutes just riffing off each other and feeling the vibe of the audience and playing their music. That's right, and and Garcia picks up his guitar and hot damn, right? And there (laughs) we go and we're spinning, right? Right, it's happening, right? And so- a jazz symphony means, and, and when you watch jazz, it's so beautiful. There's this moment where, where the other, the trombone steps back, right? Everyone steps back and maybe got the clarinet, whoever you've got playing, and all of a sudden they're playing. And they're playing something that's never been played before. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's undeniably original, irreducibly new. It's an emergent, right? It's an emergent because that's what reality does. Reality generates new emergence. I'm a new emergent of reality, and I have a unique gift to give. I have a poem to write, a song to sing, right? A way of laughing, living, and being that's actually needed by all that is. That's a contribution. It's my verse to contribute. That's the jazz symphony. That's who I am. That's what it means to play my instrument because I'm a unique incarnation of Eros. Now, what we've described here, what we've described here, Aubrey, is a new political structure. It's a new economic structure, right? It's a new social structure. In other words, reality doesn't need to be run by a command and control top-down in positional framework, right? Which is what those- One composer, a bunch of instruments. Which, which is- Following directions like robots. Which is precisely what those proponents of closed societies are claiming, 
that the only way we can organize right a society which has going to have 10 billion people by the end of the century then it's by the way going to go through a precipitous drop for lots of reasons but but you can't organize 10 billion people we have to have a command and control top down one composer everyone's told what instrument to play no you actually can create an open society now open societies as they exist today are going to dissolve they're going to disappear and disintegrate because they have no organizing principles and organizing principle means and now this is the whole everything was for this Organizing principle means you can create not complicated systems, which are alienated from each other, which are lost in rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, which generate fragility. You can create complex systems, David Snowden's distinction, meaning a complex system means that the whole system actually operates in resonance. And the way I understand a complex system, which Snowden doesn't say, but, but he, 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 he agrees with, is that a complex system means there's allurement between the parts, mm-hmm. right? They're in resonance with each other. So a complex system is self-organizing. So it's very beautiful. It's self-actualizing. We're beginning to describe a self-actualizing society in which, so an anthill, every ant knows what to do. How, do. how do ants know what to do? So we're not sure. So we started to look for the command ant. That was what early research did. We couldn't find the command ant where we started looking slime molds for the pacer cells that were telling, you know, slime mold that moves through the forest floor, then splits into separate cells, then comes back together. We tried to understand how does it do that? So we looked for the pacer cell. There was a 1962 article by Schaefer out of Harvard that, you know, everyone assumed there's a, there's a general someplace. We just can't identify the general because he's hiding too well. And then we realized Evelyn Keller's, Evelyn Keller's research, Evelyn Fox Keller's research based on Turing's morphogenesis at Bell Lab began to realize, no, 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 actually there's simple rules that generate, right, the inherent process of self-organization in a slime mold, in an anthill, right, in a beehive. And let's say in an anthill, one of our approximations is the ants secrete pheromones that actually communicate information that tell every ant what to do. Now, however an anthill self-organizes, we know that it does. Right. And an anthill, for example. Or maybe that's just our fixation on there being some materialist reductionist way to explain a phenomenon which does not require actually anything to participate in the world of matter that can be measured by science. In, in other words, pheromones might carry it or it might be carried not through pheromones, right? right. Through a different kind of telepathy, right? But the evidence is it's very clear that that, that it's anthill, happening. It, it is it is happening. So imagine that the human world is not reduced to a totalitarian anthill. And now you can just feel the palpable excitement. Imagine we can actually generate a self-actualizing society. Now, what is the equivalent to what might be the pheromone, might not be, but to the self-organizing principle at the level of Antil, what's that principle at the human level? Uniqueness. Mm. It's gorgeous. In other words, right, we actually self-organize, we self-actualize in alignment with our irreducible uniqueness. Mm. Because uniqueness is actually the inborn quality of the human being. If I clarify my uniqueness, I don't get stuck in my separate self, self-commodified talents. I actually get quiet enough in true self to listen right, to who I am. I feel myself with the field of being because I need a glimpse of true self. It might be through dance. It might be through psychedelics. It might be through meditation, right? But it might be through nature. I need a glimpse of the realization yeah. that I'm part of the field. And then... I'm an irreducible, unique expression of the field. I listen to my uniqueness and I self-actualize to give my unique gifts into my unique circle of intimacy and influence, right? Through the medium of my uniqueness. 
So all of a sudden, who am I? I'm a unique incarnation of Eros, of love. So imagine, right, as the structure of a political society, uh, of a new universe that's at, on the brink of metacrisis, imagine the responses of planetary awakening in love through unique self-symphonies. And I think wow. what's, what's necessary is for people to actually get a taste. They yeah. have to have a taste in the fragrance of their unique self and to realize that that when you actually do that, that actually the unique self of an individual is not going to exhibit the same characteristics that we've seen from fellow mankind for As so long. As the ego. The, ego, the unique the, self and the, the ego are, are completely right. different and, and from it's each like, other. Because we think of people, oh, people are greedy, they're bellicose, they're all of the aspects of the rivalrous conflict and win-lose metrics. But actually, if you go through all of these levels of self, you actually do transcend you know, all of those shadow qualities that what, what, actually what, make people want to hurt other people because that's actually a disconnection from the field. So let, let's, let's be really close. This is, this is huge. Okay. And, and, and all the hard work we did and the joy and the, the, the delightful kind of ecstasy of this dialogue, which brought us to this place, right? N now we get to kind of reap the harvest, right? So what happens is there's an eros to unique self, right? There's an aliveness to unique self. Mm -hmm right? The eros, the experience of being radically alive comes from being in my unique self. My unique self doesn't, remember, we, we distinguish between uniqueness and separateness. So unique self doesn't separate you. Unique self, uniqueness is the currency of connection. Mm -hmm. Unique self is the puzzle piece connects. Now, evolutionary unique self, let's just finish our, our, our analogy. In unique self, the puzzle piece completes the puzzle. In evolutionary unique self, the puzzle piece evolves the puzzle. And the puzzle itself is evolving. And the puzzle itself evolves through each evolutionary unique self. And in unique self-symphony, you realize my puzzle piece is actually my instrument in the unique self-symphony, mm -hmm. right? Like, wow, yeah. right? So now, so it's not so much that I evolve beyond ego or beyond even the shadow qualities of ego, when I, when, I, when I come to unique self, it's not that I've left ego behind. Ego actually prefigures unique self, but I evolve beyond my exclusive identification with ego. I actually create a new center of gravity. My center of gravity is not separate self, right? My center of gravity is not, not true self where I disappear. My center of gravity is my unique self. And we actually know, and this is the, the conversation I shared earlier with, with Don Beck, that actually it, the higher levels of developmental consciousness mapped by a hundred different developmental thinkers, right? What we're calling, oh, they don't have words for it. I did a dialogue with Suzanne Cook-Reuter who said, you know, no, unique self. She was a Buddhist practitioner and a unique self. I can't, and I can't be. And I actually showed her, we had a beautiful dialogue. It's actually in an academic journal and she was fantastic. She's a great developmental thinker. I was able to show her with great delight and honor and, and, and gentleness that actually in her work, in her description, right, of Right, higher levels of developmental consciousness, just hold on to your seat for a second. She actually used the word unique self because it's the only word she could, right? Mm -hmm. she had, right? In other words, you know, she hadn't read my work. She was, she was looking for a word for it. I didn't know it. I'd already published the unique self book. And she actually described something similar and she actually located it. And, and it's actually kind of, it's a stunning realization that actually unique self actually lives everywhere. It's where I orient from. And it's not that I left shadow behind, it's that my, that I actually have 
a wedge of awareness. I'm not identified with the shadow. I'm actually identified with the eros of my unique self that actually yearns to contribute a verse, Mm -hmm. yearns for goodness, yearns for truth, yearns for beauty. I'm actually self-actualizing, right, as a unique self and a unique self-symphony. And just imagine the experience of the guy or the woman playing in the band. There's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. You never get to repeat that, right? The experience of playing in the band and playing, you know, in a jazz, right, you know, quartet. Even, even a drum circle. Even really. a drum circle. There's nothing like it. Oh, it's amazing. That's your actual experience. Your actual lived experience is, I'm in my drum circle. I'm, I'm playing in the symphony, right? That's not an experience of a desiccated separate self. You know, that the guy, Cometti culture, you know, sculptures, you know, talked about this desiccated self, you know, the poet, you know, T.S. Eliot, right? The hollow men and the stuffed men. No, no, no. This is the experience, right? Of playing in a jazz quartet in a drum circle. There's nothing more ecstatic. There's nothing more fulfilling. There's nothing more, right? Beautifully seductive in the highest sense of the word. So now we're talking about a self-actualizing world. That's the code for an open society. Politically, open societies will actually fall before closed societies unless they have inherent principles of self-actualization. They have to have actually simple first principles, the answers to who, where, and what, and we've talked today about who, which actually generate the self-actualization of a robust, healthy, strong, open society. So what we're talking about today is actually the future of humanity. Indeed. You, you, and can't, you can't generate a humanity. Indeed. And what we also have to talk about is the link between, and we cannot talk about it today. We got to wrap this show we up. We got to wrap this show up. The link between Eros and ethics and how actually the ways that we go like get lost. Sometimes it's because we've gotten lost in the development of self and we're too, you know, too far one side on the ego, too far one side on this side. We can get out of balance, but there's also impulses that we have to acknowledge are yes. necessary for our goodness, necessary for our truth, our beauty, and actually the the flowering, the fruition of us into our unique self and how we can get this steered is, wrong into what you would call pseudo-eros and these pathways that lead to yes. depravity. So what, what associated you there, sweet brother, is and you, you skipped sharing with us one moment of your association. So with your permission, I'm going to fill it in. What moved you there was we talked about... Yes, yes, yes to everything mm-hmm. you said. No but at all, just an and, which is once we realize that my eros, right, is an expression of my unique self. Okay, so then I realize that to the precise extent that I'm not living my unique self, which is my light, it's in shadow. That's a huge conversation. But so my shadow is not my jealousy, my rage, my anger. Those are my shadow qualities. hmm It's a huge mistake. Robert Bly wrote a book called The Little Book of the Shadow, where he mistakenly, as most theorists do, identified shadow with shadow qualities. Those are just shadow qualities that are struggling to get my attention. My shadow is my unlived unique self, right? My unique self distortion, right? That's my light, my unique singular quality of light, my unique frequency, which is now in shadow, which then struggles through shadow qualities to get my attention. And that's gorgeous. Now, as you point out, and what we talk about that, I know we're doing a two-part, you know, question one, who are we? We're doing two parts. So let's talk about this, you know, in, in the next part. But what you point out, and which is critical to this new story of cosmorotic humanism, is that when there's a breakdown in eros, which means a breakdown in unique self, 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Then there's a breakdown in ethics. Yep. That's what shadow means. Yep. Right? And it's ethics breakdown when I'm not living the fullness of my story. And then we begin to realize how damaging it is to think that my story is just a separate self, rivalrous conflict, win-lose metric story, pathologizing. You create a pathological society, which is what we've done. But true self, which has moved beyond your story, is also pathological, right? Because, because actually my story, right, is my eros. It's my unique self story. It's not my ego story. It's my unique self story. And it took us, of course, the whole dialogue to get her because we wanted to get her not as a declaration, not as a dogma, but we've actually done the deep work of seeing the evolution of this first value and first principle of uniqueness, which now triumphs as this new understanding, unique self, which begins to be the ground on which we can create tomorrow. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. go. Oh my God. You know, I know we're at the end. Maybe if we can, we'll finish in the last minute. And I'll tell you a story again that I've told you before. And I know that you've told and told beautifully, but it'll actually, it'll maybe wrap us maybe perfectly. And Mm -hmm. you can guess where I'm going because we're Mm -hmm. in together deeply. Our friend Zushya. Mm -hmm. So Zushya is this Hasidic master and we can tell it together. Right, Zushi is this Hasidic master who's on his deathbed. Now, here's the thing people don't realize about the story. People tell it popularly, but of course, a popular story is hiding something very deep. Zushi is a true self master. And what he realizes on his deathbed is unique self. Mm. So Zushi is dying. He's this major master of the Hasidic movement that Martin Buber wrote about, the, the kind of great, ecstatic, you know, ethical mystics. And he's crying. And his students say, Master, why are you crying? And Zusha is a master of true self. So when people would go visit Zusha, who was very poor, and they'd say, they'd say, Zusha, Gewalt, you know, you're suffering. And you're, you're living in this broken down place and you've got nothing. He'd say, suffering? What suffering? Right? He was complete true self. Mm. Right? He, he wasn't able to make a blessing because he would say, blessed are you. You you, and he would feel the infinity of divinity and faint in ecstasy. Mm. He's a true, he's a complete true self-master. And then on his deathbed, he realizes, no, no, it's not just true self. And he says to his students, I'm crying because, because when I die, if they ask me, Zushu, why weren't you Moses? I'd say, I didn't have Moses' mind. I didn't have his, his propensity for law. Why weren't you Aaron, who was the high priest? Well, I didn't have the priestly capacity. You know, why weren't you Akiva? Well, I, I didn't have the kind of, the, the, the ability to make Akiva's distinctions, but I know they're not going to ask me any of those questions. They're going to ask me one question. They're going to say, Zushia, why weren't you Zushia? He says, oh, he realizes on his deathbed, it's not just true self, it's unique self. He had this, he, he got the lineage in this. He said, ah, I was born for unique self. And his last teaching was the transmission of unique self. The only thing we're held accountable for, no one's going to ask me when I die, Mark, why weren't you Aubrey? No one's, no one's going to ask Aubrey, why weren't you Mark? Or ask, you know, me, why weren't you Ryan who's sitting here? And why weren't you Christian? They're going to ask me one question, one question only. Mark, why weren't you Mark? And so, oh my God, I'm alive. And the they is you, and the you is they, and, and the, not you, and not they. And yeah, that's the paradox. That's right. And they is, is universe. The they is, is universe. reality. Yeah. What a delight, brother. What a delight. Oh, my God. I can't wait for the next one. Can't wait for the next one. Well, Love you madly. Love you madly. Love you Thank madly. Thank you, everybody. Madly.
Thanks for tuning into this episode with Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. And please keep aware, this is a series that's going to be ongoing indefinitely as we explore all of these big questions. So keep a lookout. We have more episodes to come and also past episodes with Dr. Rabbi Mark Gaffney available on YouTube and on my podcast as well. So much love.